It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. A federal judge has sentenced former New Orleans Mayor Ray Nagin to 10 years in prison for a corruption conviction. The sentence was lighter than what prosecutors were seeking for the former two-term Democrat. NPR's Debbie Elliott covered Nagin's trial earlier this year, and she joins us now to talk about today's sentencing. And Debbie, first remind us of what Ray Nagin was convicted of back in February. Well, a New Orleans jury found him guilty of 20 of the 21 federal corruption counts he was facing. They were charges like bribery, conspiracy, money laundering, wire fraud, and a few others. Uh, the conviction stems from Nagin's relationships with businessmen who were showering him with money and gifts, things like um, free granite for his family's countertop business, trips to Jamaica, trips to Las Vegas, trips to New York, all these from businesses who needed favor with City Hall. They were looking for contracts. And a lot of this was happening in that very difficult period after Hurricane Katrina in 2005 when the city was struggling to rebuild. Now, under federal sentencing guidelines, uh, Nagin was facing up to 20 years in prison, uh, but the judge today scaled that back to a 10-year sentence. Why? Uh, U.S. District Judge uh, Ginger Berrigan is the judge, and she told the courtroom today that she was going to be a little bit more lenient with Ray Nagin based on several factors. One, she cited his age. He's 58 years old, and she said there was probably a remote possibility that he would be able to violate the public trust again. And I think she's hinting in that, that New Orleans voters are unlikely to turn to Ray Nagin again. Um, when he left office in 2005, he was wildly unpopular. At the time, there was a lot of frustration about the pace of the recovery after Hurricane Katrina, and allegations were already starting to swirl about, you know, city hall corruption gone rampant. Berrigan also said uh, that prosecutors failed to present any evidence that 
Nagin was a ringleader here. He was not the instigator. Others came to him with bribes. It wasn't like he was going out with his hand held out and saying, give me money and I'll give you city contracts. Now, during the trial, Nagin you know, continued to maintain his innocence. He took the witness stand in his own defense, if you'll recall, arguing, you know, he wasn't active in city contracting decisions. That wasn't his job. Um, and that he didn't take bribes, but, quote, legitimate business investments in his family's uh, countertop business. So at the settlement hearing today, he told the judge that he was going to stand by the testimonies always already presented, assuming his what he said on the stand, and that he would just trust God to work all of this out. Still, uh, before the, the sentencing hearing was out, Berrigan did say that the seriousness of Negan's offenses could not be overstated. She said, quote, corruption breeds public cynicism nowhere more than New Orleans. For for a man who really did become a, a national figure uh, fighting for New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, this has been a remarkable uh, fall from grace. It really is. And, you know, he ran as a reformer back when he first won office in 2002, um, saying he was going to clean up City Hall. Now he becomes the very first New Orleans mayor ever convicted um, of a federal corruption charge and sentenced to prison for it. Granted, he's a former mayor, but it's the first time a mayor has been in that position. And uh, he'll be reporting to federal prison come September 8th. Debbie, thank you. Thank you. That's uh, NPR's Debbie Elliott. Like with all good stories, the black people end up either dead or in jail. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, November 20th, 2015. So I have been told this is our final study session on Gary Riblin's Katrina After the Flood. We are picking up on Chapter 26. Uh, as you heard at the beginning of the audio clip, uh, all of this concludes. Uh, you get more details uh, on Ray Nagin's conviction uh, in this week's segment of the book and kind of wrapping up where things are 10 years after the failure of the levees, uh, the hurricane, and I would argue 10 years of ethnic cleansing, deliberate acts of racism, white supremacy, uh, to abuse, dislocate, and as Mr. Blakely said in last week's segment of the reading, for white people to reestablish their foot on the neck of black people. With that said, we will get to the final session on the text. Again, we're in the middle of chapter 26, Gary Rivlin, Katrina after the flood, context of white supremacy. A milestone was reached in early 2012 when the last of the FEMA trailers were removed from New Orleans. The homes of some people around town were still not finished, but city officials said it was time to rid the neighborhoods of these eyesores. Code enforcement inspectors handed out tickets, threats were made, hearings held, and appeals lost. Another page was turned in New Orleans post-Katrina history, Mitch Landrew said, when FEMA finally declared his a trailer-free city. Pages were not only turned, but eliminated when that spring, Times-Picayune publisher 
Ashton Phelps Jr. announced the newspaper would move to a three-day-a-week publishing schedule, Sunday, Wednesday, Friday, seven years after Katrina, New Orleans would rank as the largest U.S. city without a daily newspaper. I'm glad, WBOK talk jock John Slade said on the air. That means the landed Confederate gentry's megaphone has shrunk. The positive news included a $14.5 billion flood protection system as impressive as it was expensive. The new pumping station the Army Corps of Engineers had built just south of the city was the planet's largest. A two-mile steel wall was built on the city's eastern edge to protect New Orleans East, the Lower Ninth Ward, and St. Bernard Parish from storm surges. The Corps had built or rebuilt several hundred miles of levees and flood walls since 2005, along with 73 pumping stations and a series of massive gates to seal off waterways ahead of a storm. Mr. Goh was sealed closed. The naysayers said the Corps had designed its system to withstand a hundred-year storm. That is, a storm that has a 1% chance of happening in a given year not a 500-year storm as some had advocated. Still, what the Corps had built for New Orleans declared Mark Schilfstein, the Times-Picayune's longtime hurricane and environmental reporter, was a far cry from the flawed structures that failed during Hurricane Katrina. He also declared it the best flood control system of any coastal community in the United States. Government, after pressure from community groups around the city, was doing a better job of maintaining properties under its control, though at a steep cost. The state was spending millions a year cutting the grass and maintaining the insurance on homes that had ended up in the Louisiana Land Trust because their owners had opted to give up their property under the road home program. The city launched a nuisance lot maintenance program with work crews trying to combat the underbrush in those patches of the city where the vegetation was threatening to take over. A teacher named Gwendolyn Ridgely received welcome news a couple of months before the seventh anniversary of Katrina. Ridgely, who had been trapped in her attic for two days after Katrina, had worked for the Orleans Parish Schools for 32 years when, along with 7,000 of her fellow employees, she was fired by the school district. In June 2012, a state judge ruled in favor of Ridgely in the class action lawsuit she and other teachers had filed. The district didn't follow its own rules before terminating its employees, the judge ruled, and then compounded its mistake by failing to give tenured preference as new schools opened after the storm. The judge awarded Ridgely $480,000 in back pay and damages, a decision that meant the schools faced a possible $1.5 billion judgment. The Super Bowl was held at the Superdome, now officially 
the Mercedes-Benz Superdome at the start of 2013. New Orleans had hosted nine of the first 36 Super Bowls, but this was its first since Katrina. Mitch Landrieu seemed intent on showing off his city. Banners were hung throughout the central business district while crews spent a month giving the airport a makeover. A new streetcar line connecting the stadium to the French Quarter and other tourist spots was inaugurated days before the game. They even prettied up the lower ninth with palm trees along St. Claude and Claiborne Avenues. Now isn't that ridiculous? asked school principal Doris Hicks. Her school was still teaching some students in trailers and blight was everywhere. And here the city is spending all these millions of dollars for the Super Bowl while people around the city want to know when the city might have the money to fix the streets or fix a sidewalk. Ray Nagin continued to make the occasional cameo. He released a memoir, Katrina's Secrets, Storms After the Storm, about those few weeks he was the best-known mayor in America. It was towards the end of my final term as mayor that I started to get significant encouragement to document what really happened after Hurricane Katrina, he wrote in the opening pages. Apparently, though, none of those doing the encouraging were in the book business as Nagin needed to pay to self-publish his work. He was invited on the Today Show to promote it and also the Daily Show where Jon Stewart asked him what he'd been up to since leaving office. I'm doing disaster consulting, Nagin began. Stewart laughed, thinking the former mayor was making a joke and then launched into his own shtick. I do disaster recovery. I sell hair care products. Nagin had been out of office for nearly two years when the news broke that he was the target of a federal investigation. A grand jury, the Times-Picayune's David Hammer reported in February 2012, was looking at whether the former mayor accepted bribes and favors from people doing business with the city. By then, Greg Maffert had cut a deal with the U.S. Attorney's Office and was telling prosecutors everything he knew. So, too, were several city vendors facing federal indictment. Maffert claimed his former boss knew that a city contractor was paying the bill for the trips to Hawaii and Jamaica that he, Maffert, arranged on behalf of Nagin and his family. Maffert also claimed this same city contractor paid for $1,500 in landscaping work at the mayor's house after Katrina. In a more damning line of inquiry, federal investigators were asking if Nagin arranged for the president of a home restoration company to secure tens of millions of dollars in city contracts in exchange for help with the countertop installation business Nagin and his sons had founded. The former mayor would again be in the news when he and his wife sold their Park Island home. The Nagins initially asked $729,000 for a place they had bought for $300,000 forty-five thousand dollars in 1998 but ultimately lowered the asking price 
to $525,000. The house sold for $485,000 in July 2012. Seven years after Katrina, the public face of New Orleans to much of the world lived in a two-bedroom townhouse in a Dallas suburb. There, 500 miles from New Orleans, the former mayor learned the news in January 2013, seven-plus years after the storm, that the federal government was indicting him on 21 counts of public corruption, including fraud, bribery, and tax evasion. Superstorm Sandy also put New Orleans back in the national news in October 2012, seven years after Katrina. Sandy caused 160 deaths compared to the 1,800-plus who died because of Hurricane Katrina. Dubbed a superstorm because its winds were below hurricane strength when it hit the northeast, the extreme weather in a heavily populated section of the country still caused an estimated $65 billion in damages. That compared to the $135 billion attached to Katrina. 80% of New Orleans had been flooded compared to relatively small stretches of New York or New Jersey, yet that didn't stop Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid frustrated that the House Republicans were blocking a $60 billion emergency aid package he had proposed from taking the Senate floor to declare that Katrina was nothing in comparison to what happened to the people in New York and New Jersey. Connie and Mark Udo were among those traveling to the East Coast to help. We flew up with Mitch Landrew, Connie Udo said. She spoke with people in Tom's River, New Jersey, to prepare them for the work ahead and offered to help any way she could. Mark cooked for 700 in the Rockaways in New York. People on the East Coast have no idea what they're in for, said Cassandra Wall after the storm. Don't call him a white mayor. That's what Mitch Landrew told an interviewer. And don't describe New Orleans as a majority black city. New Orleans has never been a white city or black city, Landrew explained. It's a melting pot. The people of the city have received me that way, and we are making this a place for everyone. Plenty of people in the black community looked favorably on Landrew. He at least tried to project himself as the mayor of all New Orleans, and his work ethic was admirable. Black New Orleans disproportionately benefited from every extra dollar the mayor and his team wrested from FEMA and blight reduction, a top priority for this mayor, was a far more severe problem in the city's black communities than in its white ones. The mayor endorsed an outspoken black woman, Cynthia Willard Lewis, over an outspoken white woman, Stacy Head, in their run for the always contentious at-large seat. Head won by 281 votes and angered supporters in Lakeview when he announced the city was spending $45 million on road repairs 
in the Lower Ninth Ward and only $14 million in their neighborhood. The streets in Lakeview were bad, but not nearly as treacherous to drive as those of the Lower Ninth. But the relative state of the roadways wasn't the point to the people in Lakeview. I took the mayor to task in a public forum, said Robert Lupo, who owned multiple commercial properties in Lakeview. I told him, here we're back and dealing with streets so bad that people are getting flat tires, but instead of investing in us, you're putting all this money into a part of the city the marketplace has rejected. Yet Landrew was a white elected official in a majority black city, even if he rejected those labels, and some would always have a hard time seeing beyond his skin color. During the 2010 election, Troy Henry had asked if maybe it was unhealthy for a majority black city to be run largely by white officials, and more than a few people in New Orleans were inclined to believe it. Landrew won friends in black New Orleans when he sided with Willard Lewis overhead and then lost them a couple of years later when he endorsed a conservative white woman over a black woman, a former district judge in a majority black district. At a high profile ceremony, Landrieu signed a consent decree with the Justice Department that committed the city to overhauling its dysfunctional police department but then he claimed it would cost too much and asked a federal judge to release New Orleans from the agreement. Aside from the president himself, no member of the Obama administration was more often criticized on Fox News and in the conservative media than Attorney General Eric Holder. Yet the Democratic mayor of New Orleans gave them their talking points for a couple of days when he labeled Holder's Justice Department a kind of rogue agency. Beverly McKenna, the publisher of the Tribune, confessed that she felt exhausted by the promises made by white politicians. I had kind of had it by the time Mitch was elected, she said. Twenty-five years earlier, her husband had been voted onto the school board. There he met fierce resistance whenever he agitated for blacks to be included among the architects, construction firms, and suppliers used by district officials. It was like nothing had changed, she said. Landrew, she said, had done almost nothing to help along other minority-run companies vying for the city of New Orleans' business. He might cast himself as this liberal champion, McKenna said, of Landrew, but once in office, people show who they really are. Barbara Major, the former co-chair of the Bring New Orleans Back Commission, was also frustrated by Landrew. You have all this money coming into the city, Major said. A hospital being built, schools, roads, these other projects. But you look at the crews working on these projects and they don't look like New Orleans. A vibrant black community needed a healthy business sector, yet she didn't see that as a priority to Landrew. Here's this mayor, known for cracking heads and throwing tantrums when his people don't give him what he wants, Major said.
In 2010, the city council passed an ordinance that said that at least half of all recovery dollars should end up in the hands of locally owned businesses and 35% needed to go to socially and economically disadvantaged businesses. Yet the collaborative, a local group that Major and others created to help minority and women-owned enterprises secure more government contracts estimated that established white-owned businesses still accounted for more than 95% of the contracts let by the city. No issue seemed to rile up WBOK's John Slade as did Landrew's pick for police chief Ronald Serpus. On showtime in the afternoon, he would review the chief's resume. Left the NOPD in 2001 after a reprimand for deceptive bookkeeping practices to buy tactical equipment for the department's special operations unit. Hundreds of misdemeanor sex assaults had been reclassified as more serious sexual crimes after he stepped down as Nashville's police chief and some complained that the New Orleans police were doing the same under his tenure, downgrading rapes to assaults. The city's homicide rate was still one of the worst in the nation, and so many cops were quitting that in 2012, two years into Serpice's tenure, the police union paid for a survey to isolate the problem. The answer, in part, was a lack of faith in Serpice, whom some in the City Hall press corps had dubbed Chief Wiggum from the Simpsons. Only 12% of the force, the survey found, agreed with the statement that Serpice's policies made the NOPD a more effective crime prevention and public safety organization. By the end of Landrieu's term, the city would be some 400 cops short of its goal of 1,575 officers. Slade was mugged on Good Friday, 2013, the first time in his life that he was a crime victim. The assault left him shaken, but also proved fodder for his show. He blamed the mugging on school reform and also used the crime to flip on its head the white fears invariably stirred up when someone black takes over as mayor. 32 years of black mayors and I've never been touched, he would say. Yet with a white mayor in office, he'd ask, how can I ever feel safe? Chapter 27 Return to Splendor Everything is coming up roses, exclaimed real estate developer Prez Kabakov. It was eight years after Katrina and Kabakov was holding forth on the hidden blessings of New Orleans' near-death experience. The 68-year-old Kabakov, sitting in a dark wicker chair in his resplendent offices on Gravier Street in the Central Business District, reminisced about the New Orleans of his youth when the Crescent City's 630,000 people ranked it as the largest in the South. School integration, white flight, an oil bust, crime. From the 1960s onward, the metropolis he loved was on 
a continuous downward path. It took a Katrina to finally turn things around, he said. For nearly a decade, Kabakov had been peddling an ambitious plan to reshape the historic center of New Orleans. It was about building on your assets, he told anyone willing to listen. The French Quarter and the Morigine were thriving. But what about the Bywater, a riverfront neighborhood sitting between the Morigine and the Lower Ninth Ward? Or Treme, which bordered the French Quarter and stood out as another old New Orleans neighborhood in desperate need of redevelopment. Two new hospitals were going up in Lower Mid-City, another neglected black community. The hospital complex looked like a little bit of Houston in the middle of New Orleans, said columnist Stephanie Grace, first of the Times-Picayune, then the advocate. But the new jobs would mean a boost in the median income and more retail, especially with the demolition of Iberville, one of the big four public housing projects. We could use a little gentrification in this town, Kabakov said. Negan had nodded his head and done nothing whenever Kabakov talked about his ideas, but the Landrew transition team invited him to co-chair its housing task force. That experience prompted him to lay out his vision in a long essay, A Return to Splendor. He called his magnum opus and, not for the first time, was criticized by some within the black community. People can be very touchy about race around here, he offered. Kabakov felt he had done his penance long before Katrina. In the 1990s, his bet noir was Barbara Major. The two clashed over his proposal to tear down a sizable housing project occupying prime real estate in the Lower Garden District near the river. His plan had him displacing hundreds of residents to build a mixed-income development he had dubbed the River Garden Apartments. My penalty was to go to one of her enduring racism seminars, he said. I bought my entire team, and we all sang Kumbaya. He was pleased to report that, post-Katrina, there wasn't the same pressure on developers to kowtow to the locals. The Big Four were being demolished in stages, so vestiges were still standing, yet any residual anger was directed at the city council and federal government, not the private developers like himself who were profiting from the decision. Each of the Big Four was being replaced by faux town houses that called to mind nothing so much as River Garden. Kabakov was a partner in the makeover of the giant Iberville project, but largely his firm was focused on housing conversion projects in the historic riverfront neighborhoods. There's a lot of juice flowing through New Orleans after Katrina, Kabakov said, and he was intent on using any available pot of federal money to see through a vision he had been touting for the past decade. The good news for New Orleans is that people like me, people with capacity, we stepped up.
he said. We didn't give up on New Orleans. Kabakov preferred to see himself as a visionary and ponytailed iconoclast rather than one of the city's wealthier developers. His girlfriend, Sally Ann Glassman, described herself as a voodoo priestess, an artist, and a social justice activist. Exotic, the Times-Picayune said of the two-story home the couple built in Bywater and filled with art. They purchased a vacant furniture store nearby and renamed it the Healing Center. They painted the facade orange and leased space to an organic restaurant, an art gallery, a co-op grocery, and a yoga studio. Artists and young people moved into Bywater. Restaurants opened along with cafes, clubs, and other businesses catering to the community's newest residents. A neighborhood that had been slowly gentrifying prior to Katrina now felt enough like parts of Brooklyn that some were calling Bywater the Williamsburg of the South. How could he not feel optimistic, Kabakov asked. Sitting in an office filled with African and Asian art and wearing Native American jewelry, he spoke of the hospital complex and its potential to remake what he had long viewed as a forlorn edge of downtown. Neglected landmarks such as the Senegar and Mahalia Jackson theaters had been refurbished, and the storm had galvanized support in Baton Rouge around long-sought reforms such as the merger of the area's levy boards and a consolidation of the city's seven assessor offices. A revamped education system had everyone he knew feeling hopeful about the parish schools for the first time in at least a generation. Creativity and energy were transforming Bywater and also Treme and Mid-City, another old part of town going through similar changes. The city has never looked better, Kabakov declared. He was not alone in that view. New Orleans is such a better place than it was pre-Katrina Bill Hines, the lawyer once so close to Nagin, declared several years into Landrew's tenure. Over dinner at a favorite uptown white tablecloth restaurant, he too spoke of the strides made by the city's underperforming schools and the demolition of the projects. His law firm had doubled in size since the storm and his happy ending, new furniture in a refurbished home, seemed an apt metaphor for New Orleans. A decaying city that had been crumbling for decades was enjoying a massive makeover courtesy of FEMA and HUD. Tourists were spending at record levels and the city's convention business was strong. New Orleans is a very hot property, Hines said. As proof, he mentioned a recent news story putting Louisiana ahead of New York and second only to California in film productions. I'm seeing before my eyes the rebirth of New Orleans. Hines would get no argument from Michael Hecht, White, the CEO of Greater New Orleans Incorporated, an economic development nonprofit. On the 23rd floor of Canal Place, in an office overlooking the Mississippi, Hecht expressed concern 
were a fragile black middle class, Hines shared the same worry. But eight years after Katrina, hecked a post-Katrina transplant declared the city to be in the midst of an economic renaissance, where pre-storm New Orleans was a town growing increasingly reliant on tourism, he said the city had invested in a giant biomedical center that promised a shift toward better-paying jobs. The tech scene that he and others had helped midwife had prompted the Atlantic to declare New Orleans a startup city. Forbes listed New Orleans second in its 2011 Best Cities for Jobs feature, and the next year, Travel and Leisure ranked New Orleans first in its annual list of America's top cities. The latest census figures showed that the city was attracting another 4,000-plus people each year, most of them presumably the smart, young, artsy types the editors of Forbes had in mind when they declared New Orleans number one brain magnet in the U.S. New Orleans, heck declared, is one of the great comeback stories of all time. Even Ted Quant, an ally of Lance Hills, who co-founded the Twami Center for Peace through Justice at Loyola University, saw great improvements in the city that had been his home since 1970. Quant, who is black, occasionally visited Prez Kabakov's healing center. There's live music, a grocery store with great produce, a theater, Quant said. What's there not to like about a place like that? Personally, he had no complaints. He had money in the bank and found plenty of places to go when he and his wife wanted to enjoy a night out on the town. He counted himself among those dubious that the charter school experiment would save the next generation of students, but his kids were already grown. His primary worry was for all those people working minimum wage jobs who could no longer afford the rent. The city does look good, Quant said, but for whom? Violent crime occurred at twice the national rate eight years after Katrina, even though New Orleans was a smaller, whiter city. New Orleans was also a less affordable city, the Greater New Orleans Community Data Center reported shortly before the 8th anniversary of Katrina. Despite the economic renaissance, more than half the city's renters were still spending at least a third of their pre-tax income on housing and the employment among working-aged black men had ticked up a mere two points from 46% to 48%. The average education level among both blacks and whites had increased post-Katrina, yet the city's poverty rate was 29% in 1999 and still 29% when in 2013 the data center released its New Orleans index at 8. The Bloomberg Wire Service found that inequality was greater in New Orleans than any other U.S. city except Atlanta. The disparity between rich and poor in New Orleans put the city on par with Zambia. The remaking of public housing in New Orleans was near complete eight years after Katrina. It represented another audacious experiment watched by researchers around the country. 
only one-third of the units overseen by the Housing Authority of New Orleans would house low-income residents. Another third had been set aside for moderate-income locals, which, after lobbying by Kabakov and others, was increased from 60% of the area median income to 120%, or $71,000 for a family of four. The last third were reserved for market rate rentals. Financing proved difficult after the collapse of the global credit markets in 2008, but Goldman Sachs, Warren Buffett, and hedge fund manager Julian Robertson were among those funding this privatized public housing. The federal government chipped in an additional $18 million in FEMA dollars to pay the construction costs. Millions more in precious community development funds were also used. New Orleans, which had 14,000 public housing units in the 1990s, now had fewer than 3,000 low-income apartments. The federal overseer, the Obama administration, sent to run the Housing Authority of New Orleans was issuing more rental vouchers than in the past, but participation by landlords in the Section 8 program had dropped steeply post-Katrina. At the eight-year mark, the city had 13,000 people on its voucher waiting list and another 3,000 families waiting for traditional public housing. The RTA was still running only half the number of bus lines as before Katrina. Those who couldn't afford a car in a city in which one in every three people earned under $20,000 a year faced much longer waits for the buses that did run. Before Katrina, a bus on the Galvez line, which connects the upper and lower ninth wards to the rest of the city, ran every seven minutes during peak ridership hours, said Mitchell L. Guidry, Jr., the RTA's director of planning. Eight years after Katrina, a bus ran every 40 minutes. The city's streetcar lines also suffered from tight funding. Where once 20 cars ran on St. Charles during the commute hours, now there were eight. The typical wait was now 15 minutes rather than five. Nearly 80% of the city's public school students were attending a charter school eight years after Katrina. Articles reported on the New Orleans school miracle and counter-articles exposed such claims as a myth. In 2013, Oprah Winfrey's production company debuted Blackboard Wars, a series about a failing New Orleans school and the high-profile charter champion determined to prove his method can work in any environment. Less than a year later, abysmal test scores and falling enrollments caused the school to shut its doors. This is a tough thing to say, but let me be really honest. Arnie Duncan, U.S. Education Secretary, offered around the fifth anniversary of Katrina. I think the best thing that happened to the education system in New Orleans was Hurricane Katrina. Parent advocate Karen Harper Royal was among those offended by the remark and also baffled by it. Royal was a black woman who had for 20 years been fighting for better schools in New Orleans. 
More recently, she had started answering the complaint line for a group she was a part of called the Education Equity Roundtable. Some days, she was receiving two or three calls from unhappy parents looking for the group's help. If I had to choose, I'd vote to go back to the old system, Royal said. People needed stability after Katrina, but instead, we got a system where schools are constantly opening and closing, and you can never be sure where your child is going next year. There was a lot of dysfunction in the old days, but at least your children attended community schools. At least you knew the people and knew they cared. New Orleans could boast of its beautiful new flood protection system, but the gift came with a price. The Corps was transferring responsibility for the levees in stages, and state and local officials were scrambling to find money to staff the pumping stations and pay for basic maintenance. That included the cost of occasionally raising the earthen levees to account for rising water levels and a sinking landscape. The levee boards had the authority to raise funds through property taxes, but any increase first had to be approved by a majority of voters in districts that covered several parishes. The state's receding coastline was another worry. The federal government had spent multiple billions on a storm system with a built-in obsolescence if the wetlands continued to disappear. Between 1932 and 2010, according to the data center, the New Orleans region lost 948 square miles of coastal wetlands, nearly one-third of the marshland that served as a natural defense against storm surge. After Katrina, a new Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority was formed. Eventually, the legislature approved a $50 billion, 50-year Coastal Restoration Master Plan. State and federal dollars would be used to fund the 100-plus projects the state's master plan identified to help Louisiana recover and protect its coastal lands. But even including fines related to the BP oil spill, the state had raised less than $3 billion by early 2015. One of the regional flood protection districts saw an obvious way to fund some of the work. Make the people who helped cause the problem pay to help fix it. The Southeast Louisiana Flood Protection Authority East, or SLFPAE, voted unanimously to file suit against nearly a hundred oil and gas companies. Their industry carved up the southeastern Louisiana marshes, the suit argued, accelerating the loss of the wetlands and making New Orleans more prone to flooding. So why shouldn't the gas and oil interests pay to help correct the problem? This protective buffer took 6,000 years to form, wrote John M. Barry, the author and historian who served as the board's vice chair. Yet, it has been brought to the brink of destruction in a lifetime. Chapter 28 Get Over It Alden McDonald saw virtue in a city 
thrumming with young energy. Brooklyn on the bayou. He and Raja even signed up for 504, named after the New Orleans Area Code, a new program in which volunteers hosted dinners for newcomers wanting to feel more rooted in their adopted city. The McDonald's would feed a dozen or so people at a time in the hopes of teaching them something about New Orleans and maybe even inspiring them to get more involved in their community. We could use all the help we could get, McDonald said. McDonald was as big a cheerleader for the makeover of public housing in New Orleans as Prez Kabakov or Bill Hines. The tours he offered interested out-of-towners now included Columbia Park, the new development near his home, built in place of the old St. Bernard complex. It's one of the bright spots to come out of this thing, McDonald said. The first shock was physical. Twenty or so blocks of dreary brick tenements had been replaced by rows of brightly painted townhouses complete with wrought iron balconies along with the occasional low-rise Creole cottage mixed in. Columbia Park could only accept around one-third of St. Bernard's former residents, but McDonald focused on families fortunate enough to secure a replacement unit. Each apartment was outfitted with a washer-dryer. Granite countertops were standard, as were stainless steel appliances and faux hardwood floors. An early learning center, a computer room, a swimming pool, a health club, and a movie theater were on site. This was a case of an agency taking the opportunity to build things the right way, McDonald said. Yet McDonald was not nearly as beamish about New Orleans' future as his peers in the white community. He also brought visitors to Pontchartrain Park only a couple minutes from Columbia Park. There, in this subdivision, central to the rise of the black middle class in New Orleans, refurbished ranch homes abutted houses that seemed untouched since the storm. Eight years after Katrina, McDonald said maybe 60% of the homes in Pontchartrain Park were habitable. Other parts of Gentilly, areas only a few blocks from his own home, were filled with moldy houses crumbling from neglect. See all those vacant lots? He pointed to an empty-looking street. They were occupied pre-Katrina. Driving around the nearby 7th Ward proved equally disheartening. There's still so much to be done. McDonald worried about a lack of urgency given all those who had declared victory over Katrina. New Orleans East was faring better than Pontchartrain Park or the 7th Ward. Estimates put the population at between 80 and 85% of its pre-Katrina numbers. A supermarket had finally opened six years after Katrina. A second opened a year or two later. Stores and eateries were leasing space in the strip malls, at least those located along the main roads. A beautiful new library had opened a few blocks from Liberty's office. Schools were under construction around the East. Cassandra Wall's sister, Tanji, who had remained politically active, saw the revitalization of Joe W. Brown Memorial Park 
as critical rather than use FEMA dollars to simply restore this 163-acre park, the Landrieu administration sought partners in Nike, Allstate, and the Breeze Dream Foundation to make it better. The park was now home to a regulation-sized football field, a state-of-the-art track, tennis courts, an indoor pool, and a rec facility that hosted after-school programs aimed at teens. The city was also creating miles of walking and jogging trails in the area. Seven and a half years after Katrina, at the start of 2013, construction began on a new hospital at the site of the old Methodist facility. Yet eight years after Katrina, New Orleans East hardly seemed a synecdoche for the higher and better New Orleans that George Bush was imagining in his Jackson Square speech two weeks after the storm. Locals were happy to see construction start on a new hospital, but where once the East had two hospitals, a single 80-bed facility was replacing a 181-bed institution. The new hospital would have no maternity ward. People were happy to have a couple of supermarkets, but the East had six prior to Katrina. An occupied storefront seemed better than an empty one, but now so many were filled with pawnbrokers, check cashers, and dollar discount stores. From the highway, we take on the look of a poor community when nothing could be further from the truth, said Cynthia Sinu Richard, president of the East New Orleans Neighborhood Advisory Commission. Fewer low-rent complexes were along the I-10 than before the storm. Some had been converted to luxury apartments, and even those still filled with Section 8 tenants were upgraded to comply with the new zoning rules championed by ENONAC. Minimum square footage, a washer-dryer in each unit, a three-story height limit. Yet abandoned apartment buildings were still visible from the highway, as were the restaurants and big-box retailers that still hadn't reopened. Walmart was returning to the east, but not the giant mall next to Liberty Bank or the movie theater in which McDonald had invested. Commercial strips a few blocks off the highway were still in shambles. Commercial properties in the worst shape, those whose owners failed to do basic maintenance, such as mow the lawn or board up broken windows, were singled out by Tangi Wall and her allies during one of their blight rallies. Their targets included a hospice, a nursing home, and a pair of churches. You'll hear people say, I thought this place would have been better a long time ago, Wall said. They're giving up, leaving their home to the mortgage company and starting over somewhere else. Some subdivisions in the east had few empty homes, but others still had fewer than 80% of their pre-Katrina population eight years after the storm. Cheap Chinese restaurants and seafood shacks and the big fast food chains were all represented, but nice restaurants and decent stores were lacking. The Eastover Golf Course was still closed. McDonald estimated 
that one-third of his friends had not returned to New Orleans. I still have family members stuck in Houston. Some cousins, McDonald said. They're terribly homesick, but people had to make choices. They found a better job, according to McDonald, or they were reluctant to move home when their kids were doing well in school. A very different population lives here now. Liberty Bank continued to expand, moving into the Chicago market at the start of 2013 when it bought a failing black-owned bank there. Soon, McDonald was wrestling a new enviable worry, slowing down the pace of growth so that the bank, which now operated branches in seven states, didn't cross the $1 billion threshold. If it did, it would have to submit to more rigorous regulatory exams. I'm too old for that, McDonald said. After more than 40 years at the helm of liberty, McDonald had been on the job longer than any other sitting black bank president. Approaching 70 years old, he took to calling himself the grandfather of black banking. McDonald looked at the uptown elite differently after Katrina. He had let his membership in the business council lapse, he said, because I did not approve of their behavior after Katrina. Many peers whom he considered friends before the storm, he now held at a distance. He would rejoin the business council seven years after Katrina, only once he was convinced that the organization was interested in promoting diversity. 90% of what they were pushing for in Dallas they got, he said, and the remaining 10% seemed still in play. In 2011, a downtown business group hung banners along the streets reading, Welcome to your blank canvas, presumably referring to places at least some people considered home. Communities such as Bywater and Treme were now out of reach to many with deep roots there, forcing people to find cheaper housing outside the city. The tradition of second-line parades, the brass band-led celebrations that take place in the city's black neighborhoods continued, but not without controversy. Events that before Katrina attracted a mostly black crowd of maybe a couple of hundred were drawing a mostly white audience of 1,500. The worry among some black New Orleanians was that transplants were so eager to embrace the local culture that they threatened to suffocate it. Ill feelings were compounded when the newcomers drawn to Treme by its rich history then called the cops to enforce a long-ignored city ordinance that prohibits the playing of live music on the streets after 8 p.m. McDonald felt especially frustrated with the town's hotel and restaurant owners. His father, a waiter for 52 years, was very much on his mind whenever industry people asked him for a meeting. For many hotel chains, they told McDonald, their New Orleans property was the most profitable in their portfolio. Restaurants were able to charge more for food and drink without any drop-off in business. The future only looked bright, for a tourism economy that they declared more profitable than ever.
Then tell your people to give the workers a raise, McDonald countered. I'll tell them, you correct this or you're going to end up with a population so poor they're not going to be able to even afford the rent here. The homeowner who paid $600 a year in property tax before the storm was now looking at an annual bill of nearly $2,000. Flood insurance rates had increased threefold. Homeowner policies had gone up by around the same amount. People's water bills are slated to be more than doubled by 2020 to pay for much-needed repairs to an ailing water and sewer system. What that means is the poor will stay poor and the middle class can never get ahead, McDonald said. Liberty was thriving, but not those McDonald and others had wanted to help when they started the bank in 1972. Get over it. That's what Jimmy Reese wanted to tell people, still bringing up Dallas eight years after Katrina. Sitting in the ground floor cafe of a Poydras high-rise, Reese spoke of the 20 years he had spent working my ass off and getting only shit. Racially, they were against something a white man tried to do even if it was for the good of everybody. He read from a one-page stat sheet he had brought with him that showed New Orleans circa 2005 to be a high-crime city with too many unemployed black men, lousy schools, and a crumbling infrastructure. His only crime after Katrina, he said, was that he had proclaimed the obvious. New Orleans had too many poor people. Eight years after Katrina, Cassandra Wall gathered with her family at her sister Petit's home in New Orleans East. Cassandra's niece, Petit's oldest, had just given birth. Petit had invited everyone over to celebrate. Cassandra couldn't have been happier for her niece and her husband. But as invariably happened when Cassandra was in New Orleans, she felt relieved her visit would be short. I'll go and be glad I went, but I feel out of place, Cassandra said. Being there, I feel the disconnect. I feel the loss. Thanksgivings and Christmas dinners were still held in New Orleans. The five of them made the effort to get together around Mardi Gras and for other celebrations and also for the occasional dinner because it had been too long since they had seen one another. I'd still describe ourselves as close, Cassandra said. We still love each other, it's just different. They agreed to avoid certain topics and tensions would flare when invariably they ended up talking about them anyway. Cassandra changed a lot, Petit said. It's not just geography. Her opinions about New Orleans changed and that's been hurtful because this is home. Cassandra had thought it was inevitable that eventually she would end up back in New Orleans. The house in Baton Rouge, she always thought, was about giving Brandon stability while he went to school. Surely, New Orleans would be ready by the time he finished high school. But occasionally, she'd drive through the old neighborhood, and all she could see 
were the homes that were still unoccupied and the same for sale signs from the last time she visited. Brandon graduated in 2011 and matriculated at Xavier. Her son was living back in New Orleans, yet two years later, she was still in Baton Rouge. I live here, but I don't consider Baton Rouge my permanent home, she said. I feel disconnected from both places. It's a bad feeling. Her sisters didn't want to believe she had given up on New Orleans. We've all done our share of traveling overseas all over the U.S., Cousin Robin said. We've all talked about it, how we've never found a place that compares to New Orleans. Kanji, Petit, and Robin were working hard to make New Orleans East what it once was and felt the sting every time they heard Cassandra say, The home I know doesn't exist anymore. Even Contess, prickly, contrarian Contess, chose New Orleans when she moved back into the old house they'd inherited in Central City. Well, I happen to love traditions and customs. They're important to me, Robin had said at one of their gatherings. She figured if Cassandra felt she had the right to vent her opinions about the place where they lived, they had the right to offer a counter view. Petit nodded her head in agreement. This time, Cassandra remained silent despite the implied criticism that she didn't care about the things that made New Orleans unique. Cassandra was tired of their disappointment, and they tired of what Petit described as her constant negativity about the place I happen to live. All this divisiveness, Petit said, started when the two of them, Cassandra and Contess, didn't want to come home. You go through a traumatic event like this, Tanji said, and it's never going to be the same. From the perspective of her sisters, maybe Cassandra's greatest transgression was that she came to this realization before the others. A tragedy happened and destroyed what we had, Cassandra said. You just have to move forward and build something new because there's no way around it. It's gone and it's never coming back. Martin Landrew, son of a politician, brother of the incumbent mayor, was too much of a diplomat to declare the new Lakeview as a vast upgrade over the old one. I can't use the word better given the circumstances, he said. But eight years after Katrina, he marveled over Lakeview's makeover. For years, he was part of a group working to draw a younger demographic to a neighborhood that pre-storm was dominated by older, smaller homes. We didn't have the closest space young families wanted. We didn't have the amenities. Katrina corrected that. Modest-sized ranch homes were torn down and replaced by sturdy two- and three-story places. Homes that survived the bulldozer had undergone six-figure rehabs that meant all new kitchens, 
bathrooms and open floor plans in vogue. The kind of change that would have taken us 30 or 40 years, Landrieu said, took seven or eight. The Times-Picayune ran a feature in 2011 about this community that stands out for the economic rebirth it is experiencing even as a national recession has stymied growth. Six years after Katrina, it seemed a retail outlet would have a hard time even finding an empty storefront. Commercial space is getting to its saturation point, a dry cleaner told the paper. Where Alden McDonald and others were constantly in touch with big-name retailers in the hopes of drawing them to the eastern half of the city, Robert Lupo, Lakeview's top commercial landlord, was swatting them away. I can't tell you how many calls I get from the national chains, Lupo said. But he had to tell them he had no vacancies. All of my businesses are happy, he said. People here have all this disposable income. Lakeview had fewer homes and more double lots after Katrina, but by 2013 it had more people because all the families that had moved there. The big fights in Lakeview right now are people building multi-million dollar mansions, Freddie Yoder said. Housing prices are going up astronomically. The range of restaurants struck Cassandra Wall when one day she drove down Harrison Avenue, Lakeview's main commercial strip. She saw more upscale eateries in a few blocks than in all of New Orleans East. Driving the side streets made her more depressed. Compare Lakeview to the East, Cassandra said. It makes no sense. Two middle-class, professional-class communities, yet one was thriving and the other was a place she couldn't live. You tell me the difference between the two communities she requested, then supplied the answer. Race, of course. Jeb Bruno, the president of Lakeview Civic at the time of Katrina, spoke of the grit among his neighbors when asked why Lakeview and not New Orleans East. We didn't wait for government, but decided to do for ourselves, Bruno said. Connie Udo, despite the racial bias she recognized in the Road Home program, agreed. People want to say people here had more money, but rich or poor, black or white, if you were wiped out, you were wiped out. The difference is we got organized faster. We realized early on that government wasn't going to be there, so we didn't wait. Martin Landrew wasn't sure what the explanation was, but Jeff Hebert, the man his brother, the mayor, had put in charge of blight, said he's puzzled over the question of Lakeview versus New Orleans East for years. Lakeview was on the right side of nationwide trends. The revival of communities closer to the core city, the community feel of its commercial strip. Hebert pointed out while New Orleans East was on the wrong side, suburban sprawl, strip malls, office parks off the interstate. The compact size of Lakeview compared to New Orleans East was another advantage. 
yet none of those, Hebert said, offered anywhere close to an adequate explanation for what he saw going on in the two neighborhoods. I look at the data out in the East, the high home ownership, the high income numbers, the high levels of disposable income, and the answer I keep coming back to is race. Same answer I keep coming back to. Context of white supremacy. Almost done with Katrina after the flood. One more section and we will be all done. Number to dial for folks who would like to participate. 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. But folks who would like to chime in and you don't want to use your phone, you can use the free Vope line. It works anywhere in the world. Uh, all you have to do, you can click the link if you are listening at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, if you're not there, you can put in the address. That address is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. The address one more time is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put in that address, click the link on the left side of the page. It should say uh, vote line. When you click it, it will open a tiny window on your screen. The first line, it is a drop-down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 564-943. The final line, it will ask for a name. If you are comfortable with your real name, that's fine. If you want to use a nickname, that is fine. You can also just press random keys. Once you get all the information entered, press the green button. It says call the program. Uh, it should connect you. You should be able to hear us live. Uh, it is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you should see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Uh, when you do so, you will hear the audio prompt. It will ask you to press the number one. I will see your hand on the screen and we can get you on the line. Again, this is uh, our last week on Katrina after the flood. Moving on to a new book. So final summation for folks who've been following along uh, for the past or I guess a couple months that we've been on the book now. Uh, final summation of thoughts and what have you reflections on 
what we have uh, learned from the book. Certainly, if uh, folks who heard Mr. Rivlin on the program uh, a week ago, if you uh, were able to hear the program, if you have any thoughts you want to reflect back on what was shared during the course of the broadcast, great time for that as well. Uh, we will hit everyone uh, who dialed in. Uh, Mr. Demi Four, uh, Thomas in New York, I will just add other hands as I see them. Uh, your line should be open. Feel free to chime in. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. Uh, the fact that this particular book made it to the New York bestsellers list, although it showed the deliberate and intentional racism that a people can endure simply because they're non-white, black or non-white, would prove in itself that we are in a racist nation and that we're also in a system of white supremacy. I wanted to start out with uh, Landau, you know, uh, Mitch Landau. He's, you know, he's uh, quite deceptive. You know, he had gained some black support. But then the people who knew him the best knew how he really was. And this guy, uh, Troy Henry, that was running against him, he's sitting there raising the man's hand up when he was giving his concession speech and whispering in his ear that he was willing to work with him and in reality, he had told people he hated the man's guts. And everything that Troy had, projects that he tried to start, the mayor would make sure that it wasn't funded or he'd get a hard time doing it. And it seems, well, it doesn't seem, it's right out in the open when Pierce wanted to get with, I mean, when, uh, Troy wanted to get with uh, Wendell Pierce, the actor, and bring some uh, some type of uh, restoration to their neighborhood and uh, to bring in uh, grocery stores and the like. You know, he caught a bunch of slack, uh, flack from uh, the mayor. But then again, the mayor endorsed uh, the same thing later on. Was uh, doing a project and trying to bring uh, their brand of grocery stores or supermarkets into the <clears throat> devastated New Orleans area. But uh, also, uh, he was a stickler on getting things done and kind of like a micromanager. But then when it came to enforcing things that were already set in place that would guarantee uh, non-white people to get contracts and to uh, be reciprocants of the funding that was coming from the government, he wasn't so concerned about that. 
and it took the federal courts to give orders for him to start improving the police department and the parish jails where New Orleans was known as one of the most corrupt police departments in the country. You know, it's just remarkable on how that police department was run because it's hundreds and thousands of unsolved cases and uh, sexual assault cases that was downgraded in one year, I believe it was 2002, they just purged the entire evidence room. So all the drugs and money that was confiscated never made it to court. And we can imagine what happened to that. You know that they took it. And you had a police chief, you know, that was black. The mayor was black. Everything looks as though the city's all corrupt behind the leadership when these things are going on uh, before they came and even after. And the same people that were uh, creating these crime syndicates and this organized crime are still there doing the same thing. I thought that when the author mentioned uh, Ray Nagin's Casino Secrets, Storms After the Storm, and that was his opening paragraph when he, the way he started his book. But, I mean, how many times is he going to take a jab at Ray Nagin and point it like he's the uh, cause of all the problems, which uh, Ray Nagin uh, turned out to be a problem, but he, he was just a small part of a larger problem. And this guy, Kabakov, you know, shows that practicing racism can be profitable. And he mentioned that he had done the same thing back in the 90s when he displaced hundreds of poor, uh, low-income black people. And 25, late, 25 years later, he's still doing the same thing. And he's in a higher position. But the thing about it, he said, was that when he had the opposition from uh, the black lady, uh, uh, Barbara Major, during that time, they were blaming the developers and the people who stood to make the most from those projects. But now, because of refinement of, of white supremacy, they blame it on the city and the government and everybody else other than the people who are posed to make the most from this. And then that uh, Kabakov's girlfriend, they mentioned she's a voodoo priestess. And, you know, to mention voodoo, uh, you think of New Orleans as voodoo's a practice. Actually, it was an African practice. And that's accepted as a religion. And this lady's white, a Jewish white lady, she's recognized in the top ten uh, voodoo priests in New Orleans. You can imagine the weight that that whole, you're a wealthy developer, 
and your girlfriend is a voodoo priestess, priestesses and uh, in a place where they believe in uh, voodoo and that type of thing. But this guy's sitting around, he's got African art, Asian art all over. He's wearing Indian jewelry, and he's one of the biggest suspected racists. Jimmy Reese, I think, that we run into. And then you got these guys, Bill Hines, and Lance Hill, and Kabakov talking about how much better New Orleans was after Katrina. Uh, things could have got better at any time if whites had determined that it was time to make it better. But seems to them that it's time to make it better when there's less blacks and less non-whites around. That's when they can really get their blood flowing and get things moving and shaking and get this thing working. And it was amazing that Goldman Sachs, Warren Buffett, and all these uh, high-powered hedge fund managers is investing in privatized housing, whereas the housing authority in New Orleans can uh, control the government uh, funding and building of privatized public housing, and then they only designate one-third towards poor people and public housing and use the other two-thirds for moderate and higher rent and then have the government finance part of it. I think that's a slam dunk of a deal. And these people are really the criminals and the looters in New Orleans. So I'll mute my line and get somebody else a chance. Thanks, Gus. Take the call. Yes, sir, Mr. Demery Four. Uh Roz should be with us. Uh I think that might be Joy as well. Uh and Thomas in New York also, if you all had commentary. Good evening. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, yeah, I totally agree with Mr. Demery. Um and I I'd like to say, man, they did the same thing where I grew up at in Jersey City. And they did it in North. They knocked down the project and put these other houses there. And they had to, a certain amount of the people had to rent out one of their two-family homes to the people that lived in the project. But it, it just never was the same. And those displaced people going throughout the city just made the whole city, you know, transform. Um, yeah, this, 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 this need to confirm our theory on land rule, very dangerous because being the son of the mayor who, Handed the city over to the niggas. He feels like he has a he has to hand the city back over to the white people, and I think it shows in some of his decision making. Um, you know, they do it real big in the big easy man. They did a massive displacement of people, a massive changing of the charter school system, and this is probably the most massive gentrification in American history. Just um, just how they're changing it um. You know, like, um, it's, this is like, um, it was like Jeopardy at one point, or who wants to be a millionaire, you know, like when they said behind New York and L.A., or should I say L.A. and New York, the city with the most films being made is New Orleans. And I was like, wow, you know, where's all that money going? You know, isn't that supposed to go back into the city? Um, that part, man, I screamed out, you know, a profound word when you read, um, you know, the rich, the poor, the is on poor, poor with Zambia. 
I ain't gonna say what I said, but man, that was tough. Like, wow, you know, compare New Orleans not to a third world country, but to a third world country in Africa. Like, you know, that's white tackiness at the highest to have a city in this rich country that is on par with Zambia. Um, no white person from New Orleans can ever say they're ignorant about racism when you hear something like that. Like you had to travel outside of your white community, you know? Um, Ray Nagin, um, you know, I think Nagin was terrible. I said that before. Um, he did dirt, but all mayors do. He was um, not punished for the corruption, I don't think, or the mismanagement. I think he was punished for the Bush thing, the Farrakhan thing, the fact that he got reelected, even though the very powerful white New Orleans that got him elected in the first place didn't want, to, want him to. I think, um, you know, and it, it kind of brings me back to uh, Stephanie Rawlins Blake, because, um, man, I, I was really scared for her. <laughs> especially after the three-block riot. And then I say, you know, um, you know, this has to be the reason why she stepped in the way. Because every black mayor that I think sticks around longer than they wanted, they wanted to see by the white power, from Megan to Kirkpatrick, you know, in Jersey you had Sharp James, you had James Ushery, you had Marion Berry, you had Bill Campbell. I mean, like, I could run down a whole list of names of black mayors who've been punished. And um, lastly, I wanted to say, and um, that, you know, just listening, man, New Orleans is a poor city, but the people there were so rich, you know, rich in culture, a culture that influenced, you know, American culture, and um, you know, without it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a relevant city in America. Um, I, I wish that the blacks would have consolidated their culture to their community to the black community, so that way they would be benefiting, you know. But white people and black people, they don't go to New Orleans just to go to casinos or to drink in the street. You know, they, they go to, to eat that Cajun cuisine. They go to get that black culture, hear that jazz music, get that cold boy sandwich, you know. They're not going there for the white people, really, you know. And I just wish that the people realized what they really have down there. And I'll move my line. Uh, other folks that had a hand up, uh, have commentary they wanted to get in. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I agree to you, Gus, um, to uh, Mr. Demi Ford, Thomas Smith from New York, and all of the other callers and listeners. Um, wow, this, this is an incredible section, but I wanted to, before I get into the sections of the book, I wanted to touch on some of what Thomas Smith just spoke about um, in regards to, to Megan. Um, when... To me, it seemed, seemed like after he dealt with Farrakhan, it was like the final nail in the coffin, and it kind of reminded me of the final Arsenio Hall show um, when he went out with the bang. He said, you know what? I know they kicked me off the network. I'm going to just get Farrakhan. And it was like, okay. So to me, it's like with Megan, once he went there, that's when the white people really, really just completely sought to annihilate him. And then um, to what uh, Demi Ford brought up in regards to uh, Kabakov's uh, wife or girlfriend being a voodoo priestess, it just really made me think. Um, uh, the vast majority of uh, African traditional religious priests do not actually allow white people to be initiated. I've seen a lot more of that in the Western Hemisphere, and it seems to me like they want to commandeer our spirituality now, not, not only just give us Christianity, but jump into what we have, because somewhere in there they realize that our spiritual traditions are the most ancient, 
and are very powerful. So to me, it just makes a lot of sense. And, and also, um, he alluded to something very important. Because you've been in an area where this tradition has um, very deep roots, the people would believe quite a bit about her uh, inherent so-called spiritual abilities because you really don't know who initiated her. So I can't really speak to that, but um, it makes sense to me. Even Dr. Ben talked about them being locked out from our tradition. But to get to the book now, um, it was very interesting. There was a section on page 398 <clears throat> that really speaks to the high level of ethnic cleansing that took place by, by uh, way of the, the public housing system. It says, uh, New Orleans, which had 14,000 public housing units in the 1990s, now had fewer than 3,000 low-income apartments. The federal, overseer, the, uh, the federal overseer, the Obama administration, sent to run the housing authority of New Orleans was issuing more rental vouchers than in the past. But participation by landlords and, and in the Section 8 program had dropped steeply post-Katrina. At the eight-year mark, the city had 13,000 people on its voucher waiting list and another 3,000 families waiting for traditional public housing. So that says almost the entire 14,000 people that occupied those uh, public housing developments wanted to come back home, and they just made it virtually impossible for them to return. And to me, that is one of the, the highest forms of refined white supremacist ethnic cleansing I've ever seen in my life, just in that short section. And then there's another section uh, here where uh, they're discussing uh, the school system, and I believe it's one of, I think it might have been, let me see whose name is it that they have here, uh, Karen, Karen Harper. She said, if I had to choose, I'd vote to go back to the old system. Oh, it's Royal, Royal, Royal said. People need stability after Katrina, but instead we got a system where schools are constantly opening and closing, and you can never be sure where your child is going, going next year. There was a lot of dysfunction in the old days, but at least your children attended community schools. At least you knew the people and knew they cared. Right there speaks to what I talked about last week, the fact that white people want to keep us so displaced and so unsettled that we never have the time to contemplate how to solve the problem. Obviously, they understand that the future is, the future is where I believe the solution is going to come from. So for them to do this to the youth really speaks to the level, the high level of requirement that this system has reached. And Katrina, I think, is the highest expression of that requirement in the form of just keeping us displaced, uncomfortable, unsettled, and unable to contemplate in a serious way how to deal with this problem, white people. Thank you very much, and I'll meet my line. For sure, for sure. Uh, I think that's Joy, uh, 6492. Did you have a commentary you wanted to get in? I did, thank you. Um, kind of to piggyback on the gentleman that um, we just heard, um, you know, just listening. I, I haven't had a chance to listen to you know, everything from this book, and then kind of swap with with, uh, with other things. But but this particular chapter, they when they were talking about you know the amount of money that was set aside for um, you know to rebuild for the you know the, kind of the poor people, the people that were originally there. And then somehow or another, they manipulated it and ended up giving 95% of it to white people. And, you know, I find that quite fascinating. I see them kind of doing that all the time. And in a way, it makes me think that really that that is what the system of white supremacy is about, is a, a, basically affirmative action for white people. They have everything stacked in their favor, 
but um, they try to pretend like that, you know, they don't know how this happens. This is like their, their white privilege. It just, you know, it wasn't that their ancestors were slaveholders. The money just, you know, came to them naturally. And, it's, and, it's, uh, and of course, and then the flip side is our fault that we don't have anything because we don't work hard enough. And, and you kind of hear that over and over again in, you know, in different things, the way they're, when they talk about things, about, you know, this system basically denying that it, it really exists. And then um, the other thing is uh, the people are extremely traumatized. They're, I mean, they've lost everything, their sense of, uh, you know, who they are, where they came from, their roots. Everything is gone in an instant. And they're not really given any help to try to cope with that. It's almost like they're throwing more shock on top of shock. And, you know, and we all kind of know, we hear hints of it, how they've studied what happens to people when you do these kinds of things. You, you know, you have that sense of loss that the one family member was talking about. You have that, you know, it breaks up families, it breaks up communities. You have trouble even uh, surviving. That You know, death rate goes up, illnesses go up. And, uh, and as you look around, even today, you know, with all these murders everywhere and murders in our face without any justice, you know, even um, what's it, the anniversary of Tamir Rice is coming up. And when you think about it, they said that that is a justifiable homicide. But when you think about it, how is that possible? They didn't know, the police didn't know that there was video, so they put out their police report early. We uh, veered off topic a little turned, bit. We veered off topic. Well, well I was just, okay, I'm just saying, I, I, okay, I, I had a point, but, but I'm sorry. I wasn't really veering, I'm veering back, but I was just saying that when they do stuff like that, you don't, in the moment, you don't, you don't realize the depth of what's happening. And then, um, and I don't know if we ever get it, like, any at any particular point down the road. Some, sometimes we do, like, through, like, shows like this, maybe we learn. But that's why it keeps happening over and over again, because we really don't have a full understanding of, you know, the deliberateness of it, as you keep telling us, and um, that they really do, um, you know, refine it and come back. And, and that's where I was trying to go with that, with that other point. Even though they know the truth, they can still declare it to be justified. And that's all I, all I had to say. Right on, right on. Hmm. If uh, other folks have commentary, I see uh, Bay Area caller. Uh, make sure we get you in as well. If other folks have commentary, uh, feel free to get a hand up. Just don't wait till uh, the last minute because we do have the second audio segment. Uh, so we have maybe another, hmm, maybe 20 minutes, uh, 20 minutes or so before we get to the second audio segment. So if you haven't commented or all the all the people that have a hand up already, if you have something else you want to make sure you get in, uh, feel free. Uh, we'll get your comments in as well. 
Uh, let's see, quick things uh, that stood out to me. Just when they were given the details uh, in, about Ray Nagin's fall from being the mayor and the financial hardships that he and his wife went through, saying uh, where they initially they were trying to get $729,000 uh, for their residence, uh, and they ended up selling it for $485,000, about three, maybe about $250,000 less than what they were asking for. Uh, and then he says, seven years after Katrina, the public face of New Orleans to much of the world lived in a two-bedroom townhouse in a Dallas suburb. There, 500 miles from New Orleans, the former mayor learned the news that he was going to be uh, indicted. Uh, and I just, I think it's so, man, when people, and so I think even what Joy just said about us, just really not understanding what racism is, how it works, the uh, intentional, deliberate effort of white people to abuse, terrorize, and destroy black people. Um, Ray, I think he shared the details. Ray Nagin was making about a half million dollars a year as a high-level executive at Cox Cable uh, before he decided he was going to run for mayor back in 2002. Uh, you go from that and making great money, have a great life, living, taking care of yourself, doing well, to being mayor, to struggling, to white people just taking everything. And I think it's, it's so many illustrations of white people just getting better at being able we can give and then we can take it all back uh in rather short order uh generally speaking uh that just again to me just speaks to the intentionality of all of this and even it seems to be a gloating i would even say that to some degree in this book uh quite a few of the i would say most of the books that i've read it seems to be uh a sort of ha 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 this is great i think they have a term for that called schadenfreude uh, where you get to experience some sort of pleasure from seeing the downfall of others. And I, I see that a lot with white people where they just seem to be intensely happy about seeing a black person that they have ruined. I think even some people look at, I think even some of you all have called in and said before that you feel that that is, that is exactly what white people do when they look back at stories like this or anything else that's looking at how black people have been terrorized. It's more of a rejoicing it. Yes, right on team white. Look what we did to him. We banged him up again. Like that's totally the feeling that I get uh the commentary about superstorm sandy where harry reed is saying that this is way worse than what happened uh to katrina when there's no evidence to support that in all in terms of loss of life uh or property uh damage uh i even in fact i almost started this week's segment with a clip from uh, superstorm sandy because black people uh, who were hit with that suffered the same thing where they didn't get the same amount of help and years after the storm they are still struggling and can't get resources to try to rebuild and have all this mold and disrepair in their houses and residences they can't get this exact same story just on a smaller scale in terms of the, the scope of the damage and, and num the number of black people uh, who suffered uh, some of the other things that stood out in the section it seems like Beverly McKenna, the publisher at the New Orleans Tribune, like she uh, really was a lot less confused in understanding uh, the deceptiveness of Mitch Landrew and the intentionality that white people had. I think they at the t uh, New Orleans Tribune, they had the checklist of things that white people were doing, destroying public housing, getting rid of 
uh, District Attorney Eddie Jordan uh, getting rid of the, uh, excuse me, getting rid of black teachers and going to the charter school system. Uh, all of the things that white people did uh, after the storm that they wanted to do to make it more difficult for black people to return and reconstruct their lives. Uh, when she's even coming about Mitch Landrew and saying that this guy, he can talk a good game and give it to you like he is a well-meaning, concerned, good white person. But now that he's in office, you can see that he's not really doing anything uh, to help black people. Um, see some of the other things that stood out. Well, I thought when they were talking about the police department, when they brought it, brought in uh, Ronald Serpice, actually when Mitch Landrew brought in Ronald Serpice, this white guy to be the head of the uh, police department, um, that reclassifying of sexual assaults, reclassifying them as something else or not classifying them as sexual assaults, classifying them as misdemeanors or however they do it. That seems to be a rampant problem that is not exclusive to New Orleans. Uh, we've had other guests on, I know in the village voice, uh, it's a paper in New York. Uh, they were reporting where this was being done, uh, at certain precincts in the New York police department allegations that they were making and other departments where they can, uh, show that crime is dropping because they are reclassifying, uh, how they, uh, categorize how they brand crimes or conversely I would assume they could do it the other way they could take crimes that might be a misdemeanor or something else and say oh we're going to charge this as you know something more serious a felony to make it look like crime is rising they lots of different things a lot of it just comes down with the way that you use words uh, whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish and really at the core of it in my view white people just being very deceptive uh, in their use of language. Uh, some of the quick footnotes that I thought were significant, this, these are footnotes from chapter 26, uh, where they were talking about some of the teachers that were looking to get compensation. They went through the courts to get compensation for being wrongfully terminated where they didn't follow due process. Uh, the footnote reads a five judge panel would ultimate, uh, you, excuse me, a five judge panel would unanimously uphold the lower court's ruling, but news accounts made clear that this victory would be hollow. The appellate court slashed the damages do the former employees, black teachers, but even this $750 million or so in back pay was greater than the district's annual budget. In November 2014, the Louisiana Supreme Court ruled against the teachers who vowed to appeal the ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the next footnote, the Landry administration boasted that between 2012 and 2014, DBEs, Disadvantaged business enterprises received $100 million in city contracts, but 80% of that total went to the two garbage collection firms engaged under Nagin, and the rest included a mix of women-owned firms and others qualifying as DBEs. I thought that was hugely important because Mitch Landrew, when he got in, bully Mitch Landrew, as they said last week, he went in and made these... Uh, these two sanitation companies, which were black companies, made them re uh, renegotiate and said that, you know, they were charging too much money. Ray Nagin had, you know, uh, greased them and gave them this contract that was worth too much money and they weren't going to pay them all of that. And he, I think last week he pointed out the details and saying that it cost more in New Orleans. They still had all this debris. They had narrow streets. It was a bigger city. It cost more to do trash removal in the city, but they didn't care. We just aren't going to give these two black companies that much money. He's taking credit, Mitch Landry taking credit for something that Ray Nagin did that then he came in with his administration and undid. And then even the last part of that I thought was equally important where a lot of the folks that were getting this money uh, included this mix of women-owned firms. I strongly suspect that it was a lot of white 
women-owned firms. Uh, that's generally been my observation when they just throw women out there to make it all-encompassing and seem that they're talking about white and non-white females. That is not the case. They generally are talking about white women, and that's what I've said consistently. When they talk about affirmative action, the people who benefit most from it are white white women and I include white men in that too once they say that they're gay or elderly or disabled or whatever else uh, they can come up with affirmative action white people that's what you should connect in your mind the last one November 2014 the city the city's inspector general charged the department's special victims unit with failing to investigate hundreds of sex crime complaints dismissing them as misdemeanors not worth their time uh, which again just compounds uh, Ronald Surface, this white guy who came in to head the police department, and shenanigans that they do with words. Um, I think you all already touched on some of this with Kabakov. I thought this paragraph was amazing when he says uh, Kabakov felt he had done his penance long before Katrina in the 1990s. His bet noir, that is a French word. We talked about that before, even with some of the guests that we had uh, from France. Bet noir means black beast. In France, it's like uh, the English equivalent would be like pet peeve, something that kind of gets on my nerves. The racism in the language, bet noir, it means black beast again. So his uh, bet noir was Barbara Major, this black female. The two clashed over his proposal to tear down a sizable housing project occupying prime real estate in the lower garden district near the river his plan had him displacing hundreds of residents to build a mixed income development he had dubbed the river garden apartments my penalty was to go to one of her enduring racism seminars he said i brought my entire team and we all sang kumbaya he was pleased to report that post katrina there wasn't the same pressure on developers to kowtow to locals. I was in New Orleans prior to Katrina. I saw no evidence that white people, developers, or anybody else was having to kowtow to local black peoples about what was going to happen in the city of New Orleans. I saw no evidence of that at all, either side of Katrina. Uh, let's see, moving forward. I'm glad you all touched on uh, Kabakov's wife and her being this voodoo priestess uh white people are so good at coming in and stealing everything that black people do and then they come in and bogart and act like they are the ones who created it and they're the ones who mastered and invented this in the first place and are sharing it with you and you should be happy that they are uh, sharing all of this goodness with you uh they do this all the time and i'm sure he probably did get some kudos uh in new Orleans. so people thinking oh wow this is a cool white guy he's really down and he's one of us and the whole nine i've seen a lot of that down through the years uh, it could not be lost the sentence where uh, they wrote despite the economic renaissance more than half the city's renters were still spending at least a third of their pre-tax income on housing that is crushing and then the employment the employment among working aged black men had ticked up a mere two points from 46% to 48% and again I think that article that we discussed with Gary Rivlin about uh, Ben Castleman that's on 538 where he was saying that it looks like now uh, the employment and the income levels for black people in New Orleans have dropped uh, against what it was at the time of Katrina. So, again, I think all of that, it just goes to the deliberate effort to terrorize, disenfranchise and cripple the black population in New Orleans. Uh, the disparity thought that was important. And they compared it to Atlanta. That's another one that I've said white people have mastered. They have that city on lock. You can put those two, uh, compare them. Uh, let's see. Y'all already touched on the public housing. Do, do, do. 
see that might be oh man there was a lot of stuff in 28 i don't know if i can pick out everything that i thought was uh important uh I'll maybe get one more in and then uh we'll get our caller in the bay area and if anybody else had anything they wanted to get i thought uh alden mcdonald uh it seemed like he understood what was going on when he distanced himself from the white business community uh because he saw what they were doing after katrina i think he was very clear about the racism white supremacy that was being practiced and i would just say again the wording this is gary rivlin where he says uh, he distanced himself convinced that the uh, business council was interested he was convinced that they were not interested in promoting diversity uh that should not be the correct term the correct term usage should be that they were practicing racism promoting white supremacy uh, again word use um oh man there's lots of different stuff where they're talking about the white people coming in and then they're calling the police when they're trying to do their parades, second line parades and what have you and turn the music down. You can't be out here playing and all that. Like just like invaders to come in and change all the rules about what is going to be permissible in an area where these people have been living for generations. Um, and, and I think I said this with Gary Rivlin about Mr. McDonald, where his father, I think, tells you a lot about his attitudes, what he was trying to do with Liberty Bank, his views post-Katrina. I think Alden McDonald and his dad working as a waiter for these rich race soldiers in New Orleans at the Boston Club for 50, over 50 years uh, and never making more than $15,000. I think that is so important for understanding Alden McDonald. Uh, when he says McDonald felt especially frustrated with the town's hotel and restaurant owners, his father, a waiter for 52 years, was very much on his mind whenever industry people asked him for a meeting and saying, you need to pay these people more. You're giving them crumbs. You're giving them peanuts and expecting them to do better. You all are making all this money and bragging about how much money you're making, that you can charge whatever you want for food, drinks, and it doesn't matter. People will pay it and you'll make even more money. Why aren't you taking care of your employees? Oh, you don't care. <laughs> Practicing racism, white supremacy. Give these niggas, you know, a few pennies and, you know, have fun uh, waiting for a half an hour to catch the bus and, uh, you know, ride two hours across town to your residence uh, every day while we fatten our pockets, our bank accounts. Um, I think I will pause. Oh, man. Yeah, I will pause there in case other folks have commentary. Our uh, caller in the Bay Area, did you have commentary that you wanted to add? You should be with us. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Oh, super. Um, I was just, uh, thanks for picking that book. It's great. I was just um, noticed throughout the book how they, on top of everything else, they they're, they're speak on that school system and how in New Orleans, how the, the, school stif- the school system was shoddy. It was shoddy or it wasn't any good in the first place. And then, and then on top of that, they pre-plan all of this stuff as far as um, cleaning out the uh, the blacks in the neighborhood and, you know, pushing in more whites before Katrina. And then with the school systems, it's like when after the, um, the, the hurricane and the flood, they used that, this education that they had to keep them away. So it's like, well, we can't come back or I don't want to risk coming back and we're stuck in these horrible schools because they realize, relied on the children to get an education and maybe they could have something that they didn't have or because we, we put a lot in education, but I noticed in a lot of the black neighborhoods, they make sure the education is not adequate for it's just inadequate education. It's just, okay, you're in school, 
you'll either be in a warehouse or in jail or you might get a job doing this or we might do you kind of like they did Ray Nagin and allow you to become mayor. We'll set you up, dress you up, put you over here. And then when stuff gets ugly, you're the fall guy. Like normally, like well, the majority of the black mayors, they usually something happens. They're the fall guy. And we're going to literally destroy you in everyone's eye, and then it'll show that black men are not competent or black people are competent to make structures. He was uh, interested in how they did that with that school system. And even when the lady said she liked it prior to um, the new setting that they had because it's like a hit and miss, like, okay, we're open this year, we'll get all the funding and the money, we don't care about the kids, and then we'll close it down, then we'll do this, then, and then just kept the children. It's just like kill them before they grow. You just make sure they don't grow into anything. So that's what I noticed, and I don't want to take up any more time, and thank you so much, and I'll mute my line. For sure. Uh, folks, have any other additional comments, if you already shared or what have you? I think Joy should be with us, Thomas in New York, Mr. Demry for uh, Ross. Did you all have comments you wanted to make sure you got in? What was that word you used that 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 you said meant um, that you're like the you want to see the other person do bad? Schadenfreude. Uh, I can. It's spelled kind of funny. I think it's Latin. Uh, Schadenfreude, uh, but it basically just means that you are taking pleasure in somebody else's tribulations. They're having problems or difficulties, and you are elated. You're happy because somebody else is suffering. Schadenfreude. Okay, thank you. Hey, Gus. The section that you brought up in reference to um, the white people shutting down the musical performances in New Orleans kind of reminds me of Harlem because uh, back in the days in Harlem, when you would go there, especially on like on a weekend on a Sunday, you would have a lot of uh, black males that would gather on those Sundays and do a lot of African drumming and sometimes. Uh, the black females will come out and dance and they'll come out in traditional dress. And now that Harlem is gentrified, they started to actually call the police <laughs> on the drummers. So now when you go to Harlem, you don't see it. Or if you see it at all, it's in very few places and very limited. Um, and also, it's just, just from this book alone, like you can really see that white people have such a, a, a deep sense of inadequacy that they have to control everything. It's like the worst kind of God complex going awry that I've ever seen. They want us to worship them, so they gave us Jesus. You know, they control all the nine, I say ten areas of people, like 50 hours in school, health care. So, I mean, it's just all about domination, control, subjugation. And then, like you said before, ha-ha, we're going to throw it in your face. This is what we've been doing to you. We can't do anything about it. Um, this, this book is just something else, and it just brings home the psychopathology of these people. Thank you. Mr. Yes, I'd like to make a comment. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, concerning uh, WBOK John Slate's uh, opinion of Ronell Serpa, the new police chief, the one that they said reminded him of Chief Wiggum on the Simpsons, this guy's resume, I mean, how could you pick a worse? person to take over an already corrupt police unit 
I mean, he already had uh, deceptive bookkeeping practices, uh, you know, buying tactical equipment, probably more guns to kill black people with. But hundreds of misdemeanor sex assault have been reclassified as more serious crimes after he stepped down. So he was holding down those uh, uh, sexual assault which he had a and you know in the, at the end of all this it said that they even put out a statement saying that with his policy it made the NOPD a more effective crime prevention and public safety organization it's just it's just mind blowing I'll mute my line Yeah, I really appreciated the inclusion of Mr. Uh, Slade and his co-partner at WBOK. Uh, great commentary on this. Seems like there are some black people uh, in New Orleans who uh, are less confused and had a, a clear grasp about what was happening uh, throughout this this process and even uh, correctly suspicious of Ray Nagin and, excuse me, not uh, Mitch Landrew, Mayor Mitch Landrew and uh, things that he was doing under his term continued. He's still mayor. Uh, Schadenfreude is one word, and it's German, not Latin. One word, Schadenfreude. Um, I. Anybody else? Make sure. A couple minutes left before we get to the second audio segment. Anybody else have commentary? All right. Uh, the portion at the end uh, where Kane Udo and some of the other folks in Lakeview are talking about the difference in terms of why uh, Lakeview came back so strong. Gary Rivlin said, arguably, it's better than it was before uh, Katrina. Now it's you know all new and sparkly, and they got all the uh, businesses they can they can handle. Um, and trying to figure out what the difference is when you have Connie Dudo and these other white people, in my view, that are just blatantly practicing racism. I appreciate the context that he gave. For Lakeview, the white people here who had been trying to break off from the city of New Orleans proper uh, to begin with uh, and their long history uh, of this, the white people in this area taking racists, in my view, racist stances in terms of what they wanted, who they wanted in their area, how they wanted tax dollars spent, uh, the whole nine uh, for them to then come out and say, well, you know, we uh, we just got out and worked hard. I think people already touched on it that it's not racism. It's just we worked hard. You 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 lazy Negroes just couldn't get organized fast enough to uh, get things together, get rolling and get your get your property back together. That That's what the problem was. You just needed to get organized faster when nothing could be further from the truth. And that I think for people who listen, when Gary Rivlin was on the program, uh, he didn't say it in the book, but it is on C-SPAN. Where he was in New Orleans, Nola, which may, and makes it even worse, in my opinion. You did you spent ten years, three years doing the book, and he had been researching in New Orleans, covering New Orleans for the New York Times for ten years, basically researching uh, for this book, talking to all these people, and then you have Connie Udo, this white woman suspected racist, get up and say, "Yeah, you know, it was just equal. It was equal opportunity injustice. Anywhere there was water." There was injustice. You know, people have this idea that, you know, it was just the Ninth Ward or just New Orleans East that had it bad. Everywhere had it bad. That had what? And nothing could be further from the truth. That's what, in my opinion, that is the core theme of the whole book, that it was not an equal opportunity storm. And she gets up and says this in front of the whole audience, in front of the whole world, because it's on C-SPAN. She gets up and says this, and he does not, you know, 
hey, <laughs> you are totally wrong. And she even admits that she did not read the whole book. She just went through and picked out the parts where she was mentioned, which is so racist. Uh, if I get anybody, any of the black people, Mr. McDonald or anybody else who was mentioned directly in this book, that is going to be one of the first questions to ask them. Did they read the whole book? I cannot imagine this book, maybe another book that's about, you know, a silly topic, not something that's serious. Maybe you just go through and oh, I'll just, I'll just read my part. If it's a cookbook, I'll just read the parts about me and, you know, my recipe. But I mean, wow, this book, 1800 people died and you're only focused, narcissistically focused on me. What, what did I do? Let me let me just pick the and read my parts and forget all the rest of it. I don't I don't care about the rest of it. All the rest of it is the evidence that no, you're wrong. You're practicing racism, and it's not that white people were super organized. It's just that white people worked. They burned midnight oil to do everything possible to make it extremely difficult for black people to come back, organized or no, and rebuild their lives. That's why you have a hundred thousand fewer black people there. Today, That's why you have 52%, if my math is correct, 52% of the black middle-aged black males are unemployed in New Orleans. That's why you have the economic disparity on pair with Zambia. It's not accident. It's not disorganized Negroes. It's white people practicing racism. And I think Gary Rivlin co-signed on that uh, when he was on the program. Uh, with that, we will get to the second uh, and final segment from the book. If folks have commentary you didn't get to share, just make a note. We should have ample time for folks to get their final concluding thoughts in about the book or Mr. Rivlin or whatever else. Uh, I'm glad we spent the time uh, studying this because, again, I, I can only say once more, this is uh, probably one of the most, if not the most significant uh, illustration of racism, white supremacy, I think, to happen in our lifetime, if not the last 20 years or so. I uh, just can't. I mean, to have something where you have vivid video footage of this happening live time, what happened to black people during the storm and the 10 years since. Uh, it is an incredible event. I hope people have learned a lot. Second audio segment, final portion of Gary Rivlin's Katrina after the flood context of white supremacy audio segment number two. Connie Udo was still working in Gentilly eight years after the storm. She thought about shutting down her organization but she reminded herself of how much happier she was after Katrina than she was before. I kind of like this Connie Udo a lot more than the other one, she said. Udo was now running two nonprofits, the Homecoming Center in Gentilly and also a group called Hike for K-Tree-Na. The later had been founded when a lifelong New Orleanian named Monique Lee quit her job at Federal Express six months after Katrina and pledged to plant a tree for every mile of the Appalachian Trail that she walked. Udo, who had started working with Pali around a year after Katrina, agreed to take over after Pali moved from the area. Under Udo, the group planted its 25,000th tree in Jackson Square in mid-2014. Money was a constant worry. The Episcopal Diocese of Louisiana shut down its Office of Disaster Recovery around the fifth anniversary of Katrina. So from 2011 on, Udo has been on her own. Her survival has come largely courtesy of a wealthy benefactor 
whose parents had attended St. Paul, the church in Lakeview where the homecoming center started. Contributions came as well from Drew Brees' foundation and she got a $40,000 check when she was featured in a New Orleans-based episode of ABC's Secret Millionaire. But even these gifts from my angels, as Udo described them, wouldn't prove enough. You talk to potential funders and it's like, we've moved on, Udo said. But come to Gentilly, go to the Lower Ninth Ward or New Orleans East, and you'll see we haven't recovered. At least Mac McClendon had the Lower Ninth Ward Village. That provided some solace when, a few weeks before the 8th anniversary of Katrina, McClendon received a legal notice telling him he had lost his home through foreclosure. I could be mad at myself for letting it happen, but I'm not, he said. He knew if not for the village, he would have moved back into his home on Kaplan Avenue. But once you know what you're born to do, you get up every day and do it. He had met with members of the Congressional Black Caucus who had stopped by the village on a fact-finding tour of New Orleans. He had given a place to stay to groups representing more than a hundred colleges and ultimately housed somewhere around 20,000 people. How could he have any regrets? My mom always used to say, you've got to find your purpose in life. And I always thought, what's she talking about? Now I know. As much as I loved that house, it was still just a thing. To keep things in perspective, he thought of his daughter's death around seven years after Katrina. A bad fall when she was in her third trimester sent her to the hospital. The baby lived, but the doctors couldn't stop his daughter's cranial bleeding. She was my baby girl, just 21 years old, he said. Around the time of his daughter's death, McClendon put his monthly town hall meetings on indefinite hold. I stopped because it's one thing to agree on what the problems are, but what's the point when nothing changed? To get to a village meeting, residents would drive the same rutted, fractured roads pocketed by crater-sized hollows that made the word pothole seem inadequate. They'd pass the skeletal remains of the businesses still shut down years after Katrina and the jungles of weeds growing where homes used to be. McClendon had mixed feelings about Mitch Landrew. The mayor had at least showed he cared about the community in ways that his predecessor had never bothered. The Lower Ninth Ward, the mayor had vowed at a groundbreaking for the high school the community was finally getting, is going to become the symbol for how America can find her greatness again. Yet McClendon was also cynical about the money the city spent on the Breathe Life, Breathe Lower Nine banners that lined a dozen blocks of St. Claude and Claiborne, the two main commercial strips in the Lower Ninth. 
you'll see Landrew when you've got the cameras around, McClendon said. Landrew was there when FEMA broke ground on a new community center on Claiborne, approved the year before he took office, and he was there holding a ceremonial shovel when they broke ground on a new FEMA-funded fire station one block away. Before Katrina, McClendon figured that maybe 10 nonprofits were operating in the Lower Ninth Ward, and I guarantee you they didn't have a million-dollar budget between them. After Katrina, he counted 53. At least three or four of these post-Katrina nonprofits went through a million dollars. He raised all of a couple of hundred thousand dollars over the years, yet managed to house and feed tens of thousands of volunteers. Something went wrong when so many millions were spent and a lot of my community still looks like it did three months after Katrina. It seemed to McClendon that enough money had been spent to build this community four times over. McClendon never took foundation money, unlike so many others in the Lower Ninth. I'm the type who would have driven a funder crazy, McClendon said. If I had the money in my hand and saw someone in need, I wouldn't care what the money was designated for. I'd help that person. Instead, McClendon made a different kind of mistake when, in 2012, seven years after Katrina and nearly five years after he first opened his doors, he agreed to turn the back portion of his center into a skateboard park with money from a local rapper named Lil Wayne, the philanthropic arm of the soda maker Mountain Dew, and make it right. McClendon was savvy enough to get his funders to cover the cost of his liability insurance, but the contract he signed meant he was responsible when a building inspector told him the building's electrical system needed a major overhaul to bring it up to code. Seven and a half years after Katrina, the doors to the center were locked. McClendon used Facebook and YouTube to appeal for donations. I'm amazed and humbled by the number of people who wanted this place open as bad as me, he said when several months later he was able to reopen. Yet several months after that, he was begging for money again on an East Coast fundraising trip that had him visiting seven states in six days. He spoke at a church in Atlanta and a synagogue in the Bronx and visited several colleges but raised barely $10,000. His next step was a Kickstarter campaign that would fall more than $40,000 short of the $75,000 he had been seeking. I've spent my life savings to get to this point, he said. I just don't have any more to give. The occasional splashy effort to help the Lower Ninth was still made. In 2013, the year the Super Bowl returned to New Orleans, a group of large home builders and the NFL Players Association announced touchdown for homes with the idea of building dozens of homes at a barren edge of the Lower Ninth. They paid for three and stopped when they were able to sell only one to a qualified buyer. The streets were in terrible shape. The listing agent 
told a Times-Picayune reporter one year after the Super Bowl. The adjoining lots were choked with weeds and there were no stores and no public transportation. It shouldn't be like that eight years after the storm, she said. Brad Pitt and Make It Right were still building homes in their small sliver of the Lower Ninth Ward. Fundraising was an issue for many Katrina-inspired organizations, but not Make It Right. The group raised $5 million at the 2012 New Orleans fundraiser Ellen DeGeneres hosted. A year later, Chris Rock was the MC and Bruno Mars was the featured entertainment. The organization raised another $4 million. The problem was scale. The Lower Ninth had 8,000 homes before Katrina. Eight years later, Make It Right had built 90 homes and a group called Lower9.org had done maybe 70. Common Ground had done 10. Nearly a decade after Katrina, it was still possible to drive several blocks in the Lower Ninth without seeing a single occupied home. Data from the U.S. Postal Service showed that of the mailing addresses in the Lower Ninth before Katrina, only 32% were now occupied. At that rate of reoccupation, it wouldn't be until around 2040 that the area recovered its population. Epilogue Ray Nagin was thicker around the middle. Gray flecked his mustache. A spell of gout had given him a pronounced limp. In January 2014, nearly four years after he had left office, Nagin was again in New Orleans to stand trial in a federal courtroom. New Orleans, now a few years shy of its 300th birthday, had long been known as a city on the take. Yet Ray Nagin, the reformer, the outsider who vowed to clean up City Hall, was the first mayor in its history to be indicted on crimes committed while in office. There might even have been a time when New Orleans would have relished the idea of Nagin on the witness stand explaining his lackadaisical manner or his inability to act more decisively when so many were looking to City Hall for leadership. But the charges against him, while serious, wouldn't force him to explain his failings as mayor. Instead, this man, about whom people had said at least he was honest, was defending himself against claims that he used his position as mayor to enrich himself. Federal prosecutors had assembled a strong case, so seemingly airtight that the legal experts trotted out by the media all seemed to assume the former mayor would accept the lighter sentence the government was offering him in exchange for a guilty plea. One by one, others indicted by the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Orleans had agreed to testify against the mayor in return for leniency. Those included not only Greg Maffert, the former chief technology officer and close Nagin confidant who had pled guilty to taking more than $600,000 in kickbacks, but also several executives who had done business with the city. One 
Rodney Williams, the owner of Three Fold Consultants, claimed his firm had had no success securing city business until he and his partners invested $60,000 in Stone Age, the countertop installation business Negan owned with his two sons. After that, they secured nearly two dozen city contracts worth $3 million. Williams pled guilty to bribery in 2012. Frank Fidella, the former CEO of Home Solutions of America, told a similar story. Eager to capitalize on the billions in recovery dollars being spent in New Orleans, Fidella, who pled guilty to bribery charges in 2013, invested $50,000 in Stone Age, sent the company two truckloads of free granite, and picked up the tab for the private plane that flew Nagin, Mafert, and others to a Saints playoff game in Chicago in 2007. Home Solutions of America received $4 million in contracts for post-Katrina repair work. If found guilty, Nagin was looking at the possibility of 20 or more years in jail, but the former mayor denied he had done anything wrong. I really think he believed he could ray-ray his way out of a jail sentence, Ron Foreman said. The morning Nagin was slated to testify, he arrived at court looking carefree, carrying a takeout cup of coffee. He joked with people he knew in the hallway and winked at others. Inside the courtroom, his lawyer walked him through his story and Negan looked relaxed, spoke to the jury. On the witness stand, he was again the affable elected official boasting of all he had done to help the citizens of New Orleans in a crisis. He assured the jury that the safeguards he had put in place meant that not even he as the city's chief executive, could show favoritism to any contractor. He made jokes and maintained his breezy attitude even after the prosecutor began his cross-examination. Negan's lawyer complained that Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Coleman was crowding his client, but Negan said he didn't mind. He invited his adversary to get as close as he'd like. I can deal with it, the former mayor said. We're friends. Negan's facade began to crack his second day on the witness stand. The mayor's smile grew thin as Coleman walked Negan through the trove of text messages, emails, and other incriminating documents the government had unearthed. The more Negan denied Coleman's accusations that he had sold his office for personal gain, the testier he grew. Come on, man, Nagin snapped. You're a very seasoned attorney. Let's do this right. The former mayor refused to agree to basic facts, questioning even his signature at the bottom of a letter. He blamed others, his secretary, his accountant, a city attorney, for documents that cast him in an unflattering light. Katrina was his excuse for personal flights that had been purchased with a city credit card, who had time for accurate record-keeping in the midst of a crisis, and his explanation for why he wouldn't know that a city contractor had picked up the cost of a private jet. 
he was working 20 hours a day to rebuild his broken city, he said. So what if sometimes he had the city pay for a meal with his family? You have no idea what it was like, an exhausted Nagin told Komen. The jury convicted Nagin on 20 of the 21 counts brought by the government. Six months later, Judge Ginger Berrigan sentenced the former mayor to 10 years in prison. Prosecutors had been pushing for a stiffer punishment, but Berrigan, a former defense attorney appointed to the bench by Bill Clinton, cited Nagin's age, 58, when announcing her sentence. Along with the irreparable harm he had done to his own reputation and the unlikelihood he would ever again be in a position to violate the public trust. The Nagins had lost their Dallas townhouse through a foreclosure sale and were living on food stamps according to a letter Salitha Nagin had written to Judge Berrigan prior to her husband's sentencing. Despite their pleas of poverty, Berrigan ordered the former mayor to pay more than $500,000 in fines. Nagin would appeal his conviction, said his high-priced defense attorney, who then filed paperwork removing himself from the case. The defendant in this matter is indigent, he wrote, and therefore eligible for representation by the Federal Public Defender's Office. Nagin, defiant to the end, refused to apologize for violating the public trust. Instead, he tied his prosecution to his outspokenness in the days and weeks after his city had flooded. Some of the stances that I took after Katrina didn't sit well with some very powerful people, Nagin told a television reporter the day of his sentencing. So now I'm paying the price for that. In September 2014, Nagin began serving his sentence in a federal prison in Texarkana, Texas. Mitch Landrew was elected to a second term two days after opening arguments in Nagin's trial. Landrew's chief challenger was a 61-year-old black man named Michael Bagnaris, a district court judge who relinquished his post to enter the race. Bagnaris spoke often about the forgotten New Orleans and hammered at a police department where morale was so low the city was nearly 400 officers short of its hiring goals. The number of people murdered fell in 2012 and 2013, mirroring national trends, but the city's homicide rate was still nine times the national average and nearly four times higher than that of similar size cities. Bagnaris fared well in lower income precincts and parts of New Orleans East, but Landrew, who had been endorsed by Barack Obama, trounced his foe in the rest of the city. Landrew captured 82% of the white vote and 44% of the black vote, allowing him to claim broad support in this majority black city. The African American community was not without its victories in 2014. In that election season, blacks reclaimed the majority in the city council and Sheriff Marlon Gusman, one of the few African Americans to hold parish-wide office, was re-elected to another term. That summer, police chief Ronald Serpice resigned, allowing Landrew to replace him with a black man, 
a popular district commander with 23 years on the force. WBOK's John Slade, however, was not impressed. Lord Little Mitch decides to do something, finally, about a police chief he should have gotten rid of years ago, Slade said. And we're supposed to be happy? Connie Udo lingered over coffee at a cafe in Lakeview a few days before the ninth anniversary of Katrina. She felt proud of all that she had accomplished, but mainly she felt at peace. Each year, since the fifth anniversary, she had thought that would be the last she saw of the church groups and college kids who descended on New Orleans to help during spring break and the summer months. But even eight years after the storm, she was coordinating crews of 60 to 80 volunteers a day all that summer. This is the first year we didn't get a huge influx of volunteers, she said in August 2014. Udo was playing tennis again. She chatted about the big trip she was taking with Mark to celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. With a sense of wonder, she realized that her phone had not rung once in the two hours she had been sitting there. At 11 a.m. on a workday, there was no place she needed to be. Her eyes were bright, her face relaxed. This is the first time I feel truly rested since the storm. Finally, nine years after Katrina, Udo said, I don't cry at everything. Mark McClendon bought a 1959 Austin Healey in August 2014. He still couldn't bring himself to attend an antique auto show all these years after Katrina, but he was looking forward to tinkering on a car again. My plan is to start working on it this week, he said four days before the ninth anniversary of Katrina. It seems time. By then, the bank had seized the strange-shaped, multicolored building that had come to symbolize the Lower Ninth's struggle to rebuild. McClendon was living in a borrowed home a few blocks away, where he would be living in a year wasn't clear. McClendon seemed more resigned than angry with the approach of the ninth anniversary. Sitting in Café Dauphine, the Lower Ninth Ward's lone restaurant, he spoke with ambivalence about the newcomers who had discovered his corner of the city. New Orleans had always been a gumbo, he said, a mix of everyone and everything. In a community only one-third occupied nearly a decade after the storm, how could he resent the smattering of whites who had moved there to help them rebuild? Yet he thought of Bywater, which he still considered part of the Upper Ninth Ward on the other side of the Industrial Canal. People he knew there had been priced out now that the modest-sized cottage that was selling for $80,000 before Katrina cost more than $200,000. He said that more whites would inevitably cross the bridge in search of cheap housing and transform the Lower Ninth into a majority white community. I give it 20 years, he said. McClendon, however, wouldn't live long enough to see whether he was right.
he lost his home through foreclosure and then his center. And at the end of 2014, he was told he had terminal brain cancer. He died less than three months later in February 2015. The usual memorials, masses, and speeches marked the ninth anniversary of Katrina in August 2014. That morning, the mayor spoke at a wreath-laying ceremony at a Hurricane Katrina memorial in Mid-City where nearly a hundred unclaimed, unidentified bodies were entombed in a semicircle of black marble mausoleums. There, Landrieu performed his usual balancing act, declaring New Orleans America's greatest comeback story, while also noting that his administration had more work to do. At an event in the Lower Ninth Ward, a malfunctioning sound system forced the roster of speakers to shout. Their speeches were followed by a second-line parade to the site of the levee breach that had flooded the Lower Ninth, in honor of those who had lost their lives that day. At 1 p.m., an advocacy group called the African American Leadership Project held a press conference in front of City Hall. Their purpose, two of its founders announced in an op-ed appearing in the previous day's Times-Picayune was to challenge the city's self-medicating illusion of progress. We believe that insufficient attention is paid to the uneven outcomes of the city's so-called grand transformation, said Gail Glapian, the group's founding chairwoman. A doctor spoke of inequities in the health care system a parent advocate decried a school system she believed was leaving too many black children behind. Nine years after the state's seemingly temporary takeover of New Orleans' failing schools, she noted not a single one had been returned to local control. To help stir media interest, the organizers had also enlisted Oliver Thomas, the former city council president, who, post-prison, had reinvented himself as the drive-time morning host on WBOK. Organizers had asked Thomas to talk for a few minutes about the growing disparity between black and white in a time of growth. Yet what struck Thomas when it was his turn to speak was the lack of local media. A single reporter had shown up for their press conference, an out-of-town author who was scheduled to eat lunch with him afterward. Had this been a press conference about a young black boy or black girl doing something wrong, every news station in town would be here, Thomas said. But when we hold a news conference about the state of things in black New Orleans, when we want to talk about what's going on with the majority of the population, and that's not news, that, ladies and gentlemen, shows you how much they care about us. And that is all she wrote. Folks who would like to participate, uh, final thoughts on Gary Rivlin, Katrina, after the flood, feel free to chime in. The number again is 641-715-3640. The code 564 
pound. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Hmm, quite a read. Uh, everyone who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, we have about 30 minutes. Uh, folks who would like to chime in, uh, everyone's line should be open. Feel free to uh, participate. Yes, I like the uh, the part on page 416 where it said the African-American community was not without its victory in 2014. In that election season, blacks recaine, reclaimed the majority in the city council and Sheriff Marlon Guzman, one of the few African-Americans to hold parish-wide office was reelected to another term. You know, it would give the illusion that uh, with that would come some change or some type of power, and that just would not be the case. And it's not the case uh, with a system of white supremacy. Another thing is uh, it was unfortunate that uh, McClinton uh, ended up the way he did. It looked like he really cared about people. And then in the end, it looked like he just, uh, you know, didn't get a fair shake with the terminal brain cancer. But I'll mute my line. Mr. Demi, four other folks have comments here. Watch that word fair. Uh, for the folks who have uh, commentary, feel free to uh, chime in. Yeah, I, I thought about uh, Mr. McClendon, too. I just felt that was really, really just a, a tough, a real tough blow. Um, some, of these, some of these people, they really strive to, to really do the right thing and try to help as many people as they could. And um, I truly believe just the, the sheer stress and depression and um, and post-traumatic stress can just trigger so many illnesses. And this book is like such a prime example. So many people died or their relatives passed away um, who actually survived the initial event just due to the trauma, the reoccurring consistent trauma and theft of their land, their, their money, their ability to come back home and rebuild. I mean, this book was... Just, just totally mind blowing with the sheer amount of um, of uh, detail in regards to the the refined system of white supremacy. This book was just phenomenal in that regard, and I'd like to say thanks for for uh, bringing this book into the book club. That's commentary from any of the other folks who have a hand up. Assume other folks uh, are satisfied for the time being. Um, looking back over, where I guess I will start where I left off at before we began the second audio segment. Um, 
the C-SPAN review or, or segment that Gary Rivlin did down in New Orleans uh, where Connie Udo gets up and, you know, she sent, she said her spill, which I said before, but as opposed to checking her hard, like, you know, if you had read the whole book, you'd have seen that this is not equal opportunity and justice, that this was a massive example of racism, white supremacy on all fronts. Uh, seemingly the evidence seems boundless. Uh, instead of that, what he does is get up and he says that Connie Udo is the white Mac McClendon and Mac McClendon is the black Connie Udo. And if you heard the program when Gary Rivlin was on, I think we spent a good bit of of time going back and forth. And I told him, you know, you cannot placate racism and allow people to get up and say things that are incorrect uh, and minimize the fact that racism, white supremacy is the story of Hurricane Katrina and not just the days after the storm, but for years and what happened in uh, New Orleans uh, and the abuse that the black citizens have endured for the last decade instead of checking her hard with all the information and facts that he has at his fingertips he's been going through all of this for a decade he gets up and says oh yeah mac mcclendon and connie udo they're just alike they uh they weren't political they both got up and organized and tried to help their community that is appalling it's even and i think as i told him the first time i saw that segment because it was a big part of the uh Katrina 10 festivities that were going on back in August. Uh, if you check out some of the different C-SPAN has a lot of footage. You can see uh, former mayor, Mark Morial. You can see Gary Rivlin. You can see Ronnie green. Uh, it's just, it's tons. Uh, Melissa Harriet Harris Perry's husband uh, who worked uh, to get uh, the lawsuit about the uh, unequal dispersal of funds from the road home program. Uh, he worked on that suit. Uh, he did some of the time. I mean, it's just tons of folks, almost anybody that you can think of um, connected with the events around Hurricane Katrina. They got some video of them saying something during Hurricane uh, during the Hurricane Katrina 10 year anniversary on C-SPAN. And you'll see Gary Rivlin in a lot of those shot like in the audience or he's on some panels. He has his own segment. Where he's talking about his book. But to get up and say that, I mean, it was just like, wow, like Connie Udo, this white woman and her family, as I said, as I told him, they were back in their house in months after the storm. And even then they didn't have any damage to their stuff. It was the first floor of their residence that flooded. They rented that out. Their stuff was on the, on the high ground of the house. So they didn't even have, you know, massive loss. You know, they didn't lose all their clothing and their bedding and all of that stuff. And they got renovations on their house. They were good to go uh, in short order after the storm. They went and started doing other stuff to help repair the neighborhood and get things cleaned up in their little neck of Lakeview. And then she went out and worked in Gentilly and helped some other folks get their things together. Mr. McClendon lost everything to have it itemized to lose his daughter, to lose his house, lose his center, and then get terminal brain cancer and die. I mean, that is atrocious. I just, it's one of those moments, at least for me, with all the great information that's in this book, I learned a lot. Uh, I think it makes it very clear, at least for me, it made it very clear what all this was. I feel like I can make a much stronger, much more cogent argument uh, about Hurricane Katrina being nothing more than a 10 year exercise of white supremacy and ethnic cleansing. I can make a very substantial argument uh, with the information that he has in this book and some of the articles and other resources that he cites to not say that and to just say that these two individuals, this white woman and this black male, that they're comparable and they represent the spirit of New Orleans and and that sort of thing. For me, it just brings it home in terms of always being suspicious. White people 
being informed about racism, white supremacy is not shocking. White people are not ignorant about racism. They would have the details. They would be the best people to go to to get information about racism, white supremacy. And even if they share some of that information with you or put it in a book and share it with a lot of victims of racism, that should never excuse them from being on the racist suspect list. White people can do that and still practice racism. He did put this in a book that got on the bestseller list, so I'm sure he got a few nickels uh, as a result of doing that. And I'm still pretty sure that most of the non-white people who uh, read his book, or if they hear him speak, or whatever the case may be, would not think of him as a racist, would think, hey, he wrote this great book, and it's calling out racism, and has all this information, and he got uh, Mr. Slade, and the folks at WBOK, and Beverly McKenna, and the folks at uh, the New Orleans Tribune, and Alden McDonald, he did all this writing about this uh, black banker in New Orleans trying to do all this, and blah, 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 yes, that's great, he's still a white man. Uh, some of the other things uh, that I pointed out just in the last segment of the book um let's see yeah connie the same thing she's saying that money was a constant worry she's getting four thousand dollar checks from some abc show i didn't hear mac mcclendon getting a forty thousand dollar check from anybody i didn't hear him getting even a ten thousand dollar check to try to to save his residence he's making youtube videos trying to keep his center open uh, but she's getting checks from all these other folks who are helping her go out and do her quote unquote uh, charity work uh, and celebrating her anniversary, her 25 year anniversary with her husband taking their world tours and what have you. I mean, it's just loathsome uh, when now that I have an image that I've seen her to connect with who this person is. Standard operating procedure. White women do it better with regards to practicing racism, white supremacy. Uh, let's see. What else did I pick out? important uh, the rate of reoccupation showing the dismal numbers and I like how he did it uh, across the board showing Pontchartrain Park older uh, black residential area uh, not totally poor and desolate but there at about 60% of the people came back they're still missing about 40% of their population uh, the lower ninth ward 32% of it is now occupied I mean that is abysmal where he says the at that rate of reoccupation it would take them another, was that 25 years for them to get back to the level of population that they had at the time of Katrina? I mean, it's just disgraceful uh, all the way through. And that's what I mean about the details uh, that are in this book. And really the people that, you know, sort of say Hurricane uh, Katrina was a devastating example of racism, white supremacy. It totally was. But I mean, to really understand the magnitude of what white people did, you really have to get into wow, let's just get beyond the first week or two weeks of the storm and let's look at what happened over the last 10 years. Uh, I still am almost amazed because that was the exact book that I was looking for and I'm unaware of any other book that can give you the scope that this book does over 10 years and the amount of information. Uh, I really am glad that we read it. I hope folks got some useful information. Uh, I can, I can again, only emphasize Ray Nagin because they keep saying that. Uh, Ray Nagin being the first mayor in history of the city of New Orleans to be indicted on crimes committed while in office that is amazing <laughs> with a city i don't know if people know but the nickname uh the, the nicknames rather of new orleans one of them the big easy and the other one is uh the city that care for god they got those names because new orleans is notorious for criminality and lawlessness <laughs> like this is not anything knew this has been long running in the town the reason that it got those names was people would say that there is no law here basically you can do anything that you want to do 
Uh, if you can't make it in New Orleans, you can't make it anywhere. That is why it got those names. That's what that means, that this is a kind of an ode to whatever. <laughs> Anything that you could do, you could come down here and do it. Be the biggest gangster that you want, biggest criminal you want, moonshine, racketeering, graft, gambling, whatever. <laughs> Let's get it on. And then they have the nerve to uh, be like, oh, my God, this Ray Nagin guy is, oh, the corruption and silly. This is a disgrace. We've got to get this dude out I mean, they've got video footage of New Orleans police officers stealing Cadillacs during Hurricane Katrina and all other sorts of mischief. And it's, oh, my God, Ray Nagin, this guy is a disgrace, the worst mayor in the history of the world. Um, let's see, what else stood out in the last segment? Yeah, the same thing that I said, but this is the type of thing where I feel like what schadenfreude, is <laughs> my term again, where he says the Nagins had lost their Dallas townhouse through a foreclosure sale and were living on food stamps, according to a letter Salitha Nagin had written to Judge Berrigan prior to her husband's sentencing. Uh, and then his attorney at the time, the defendant in this matter, is indigent, he wrote, and therefore eligible for representation by Federal Public Defender's Office. I feel, again, white people love that sort of thing. Uh, we totally destroyed their family, took everything. We allowed them to have a few nickels, and now we've taken it all back. And, uh, yeah, you poaching, they're on food stamps and whatever. See if we can get that back from them, to and order them to pay $500,000 in fines. Just pile on totally this to me has all of the earmarks of this was our intention from day one that's why i keep going back to when they point out on the saturday before the storm hit so i guess this would be two days the storm hit monday so that saturday that ray nagin was on the set for this disney movie playing a corrupt mayor they had all of this planned well in advance about what they were going to do how they were going to use ray nagin what they had the setup for I, I mean it just to me it seems like they had all of this meticulously detailed on their like this was on their checklist that they were talking about on the new orleans tribune the destruction of ray nagin we got that too already worked out and going to have a great time laughing about it as we roll. Uh, let's see. Anything? Yeah, I touched on the Mac McClendon. That was pretty sad to hear. Um, yeah, I will I will pause there. Uh, the other folks that dialed in with a hand up should be uh, with us as well. If you all had any comments you wanted to get in. Uh, let's see. The 5234, I guess you're back with us, Rods. We got disconnected. And the caller from a, a blocked number. Uh, anybody that wanted to comment to we have not heard from do you have anything you want to get in um good evening everyone it's karma i think just as um being at the end of this since there's some eastern universities that are doing studies katrina katrina studies i think you should kind of look at this like the tuskegee syphilis I mean, they 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 go down and they quant you know quantify how many of the children qualify as post traumatic stress disorder, and they they check every year, they check every year and and they follow the behavior, and I don't they, I don't think they offer them any kind of uh, intervention, but they do check to see how many still qualify as behaving as though they have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I guess they'll do this forever, just like, you know, the syphilis experiment. So we should, you know, that's something you might want to notice over the decades that they are following these children to see what happened to them. Although white people pretty much know what happens to children when you stress them out. I think they're particularly interested in this because, I mean, it's a large cohort. 
it's huge, it's great. So they're gonna just they're gonna they're gonna run this experiment forever. And secondly, um, I missed Dick McClinton. That was truly sad. But you know, I mean, for him to have not just breast cancer—I mean, not breast cancer, <laughs> brain cancer—but you know, kidney cancer and lung cancer all at once. I'm thinking that's probably toxic exposure. So you know, I—that I, I, could have been anything. Maybe he had one of the FEMA trailers and he had the formaldehyde, or they all—all all the drinking water on that side was contaminated, and they didn't tell anybody. You know, arsenic and and lead and stuff like that. But uh, they didn't—they didn't—they didn't really tell anyone and they probably won't ever so um anyway i just say think of this as kind of a long-running uh tuskegee syphilis experiment because they they have their baseline studies and they have members and they're just going to come back every year just to see what happened my comment right on right on uh did we Miss anybody? Anybody uh, that had a hand up? Oh, oh can I can I speak, uh, Gus? <clears throat> yes, sir. I thought about um, when you were discussing uh, Gary Rivlin and Connie Udo because I actually did see that C-SPAN um, event that he was a part of, and um, to me that that whole idea that he didn't check her, like you said, and I thought about that when I saw it really speaks to the one thing that I disagree with uh, Neely Fuller about. I just think that there's white supremacists and non-white people. No matter how nice they are, no matter how much information they present, you're going to find that they practice racism, white supremacy in any way. And that is just a prime example of that. No matter how well-intentioned his work was, he's still a white supremacist in some form or fashion that's going to rear its head. And that's a perfect example. The other thing I thought about with um, when you were just discussing Connie Udo and um, I thought about Mac McClendon and his race comparison, like just that too, the the comparison of McClendon versus her, um, just the idea that how she basically gets to walk off into the sunset because white people came to the rescue and made sure that she landed on her feet and, and, no, you know, in, in no time flat, and this man had to suffer through all the stuff he suffered through. There's no wonder why he passed away. And just look at that. That's a great example of just looking at one side where you're getting the assistance you need and the constructive help you need after a, after a disastrous situation, and then the other side in which you just keep everything from, from these people, you know, continue to psychologically terrorize and harass them, um, financially terrorize and harass them. I mean, in every way, shape, or form, they just went about setting us back, and you can see how he ended up versus how she ended up with constructive help, and that speaks volumes to just what we experience as collectively on a daily basis in regards to these white people. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, just quickly, because I did, I did a lot of uh, extra reading on this topic. If if you are interested in racism, white supremacy, and/or if you enjoyed this book or have any interest in reading more uh, about Hurricane Katrina uh, or the after aftermath, or just you know the history of racism in New Orleans, uh, there are a lot of books, uh, specifically the Katrina aspect. Tons of books, more coming. Uh, I mean, extremely well researched in terms of white people studying what they did uh, with this event uh, in the 10 years <clears throat> subsequently. Uh, one of the books, even though it's not about Hurricane Katrina, 
uh, that I've said consistently, particularly the people who think that the levees or any aspect of them were deliberately dynamited, you should definitely read Rising Tide. Um, John Barry, he is a white man, suspected racist. Uh, I think I read a little bit from it before, but uh, the one passage that stood out, this is from uh, chapter 16 in that book, because I've talked about how consistent, I think for months now, I've talked about how uh, the death toll is not accurate, uh, that they did not make an effort to go in to count all the black people who died and rec- uh, recovering bodies. I think they even wrote uh, that some of the bodies probably got washed uh, back out to sea uh, when the water was being uh, was coming in and going back out and that sort of thing. It's just who knows. You'll know. I've seen that consistently. I think most uh, folks who are being honest have said that you will probably never have an accurate uh, death toll uh, for this event. It just it just would not be possible. They didn't even name. Uh, they didn't even match all of the uh, identify all of the bodies. They had that section included as well. Uh, but in Rising Tide, chapter sixteen, page five ten, uh, Mr. Barry he's writing now. This is about uh, flooding that happened uh, in nineteen twenty seven uh, in Mississippi and New Orleans as well. But this is in Mississippi uh, where he writes. There's no accurate count of the number of men swept to their deaths. As the levee broke, the Red Cross listed two dead. The Memphis Commercial Appeal said thousands of workers were frantically piling sandbags when the levee caved in. It was impossible to recover the bodies swept onward by the current at an enormous rate of speed. The Jackson Clarion Ledger reported refugees coming into Jackson last night from Greenville declared there is not the slightest doubt in their minds that several hundred Negro plantation workers lost their lives in the great sweep of water which swept over the county. Judge R.C. Trimble, an eyewitness, said he did not expect the bodies to be recovered for days, if ever. The Associated Press quoted National Guard Sergeant Henry Bay, who was in charge of the rescue and estimated that more than 100 Negroes had been drowned in the floodwaters. The only official account that of the National Guard officer at the crevice site stated only no lives were lost among the guardsmen. I will stop there, but that same contempt for black life, uh, who knows how many niggas died. Can't count them. We don't know. It just looks like a lot of them died, or maybe even we'll just say none of them died. No casualties. It was just another nigger or another hundred niggers that died. Oh, well. And that's throughout the book. I think this, I read a passage from this before where I talked about where they ran out of sandbags and they literally used black people as sandbags and stacked black people up on the levee to protect them from the water. That's in this book, Rising Tide, where they ultimately do deliberately dynamite the levees in new orleans that's john barry you can read that but there's a lot of material the other uh point i was going to make as i've said i have the kindle version of katrina after the flood and one of the things with the kindle version you can see if other people highlight a particular passage in the book you can see once it's like four or five people have highlighted the same passage then you can see that like oh okay five people highlighted this or 12 people highlighted this uh from what i saw uh nobody highlighted the things that i highlighted uh in the book things that i pointed out i did not see that overlap happen which has been pretty consistent i think when we read uh richard williams book black and white the way i see it i was pointing out the things that they highlighted first things that i highlighted there was very little if any overlap in that book either and with this book uh all of the highlighting that I saw was in the early portion. 
Uh, to me, that suggests that I suspect a lot of people did not read the entire book. They uh, started out, read the first couple chapters and stopped. I don't know if it was uh, too real about the racism, white supremacy or too long or whatever the case may be. But I, I did not see any highlights at all uh, for about the last, I would say, maybe even 20 chapters. Uh, all the, the highlights that I've seen thus far in the early part of the book. This is a relatively new book. It just came out in August. So maybe you have to wait a little while longer to see what else people will highlight. But I did not see any highlights down the stretch of the book. Uh, Anybody else have anything they wanted to get in before we uh, close the chapter on uh, Mr. Rivlin's work? Yeah, I just want to say, man, I really enjoyed this book. I heard, uh, really enjoyed this book. You were breaking up a little bit, but I got to really enjoy the uh, enjoy the book. Um, there was. Yeah, I said I enjoyed this book, and I enjoyed all the books you picked us for. And I said I was just so curious to know what's next. Oh, right on. Glad I didn't hear that part. Um, I had said that I think my my vote would be we should go ahead and just do Tanahasi Coates uh, between the world and me or whatever it's the Ta-Nehisi Coates new book, black male author. I say we should do that because it's really short. Uh, it's only, it's not even 150 pages. It's very, very short. And with the rate that we normally do for the book club, we would finish that in like three sessions. So if we started that next week, we would be done before December 25th. That's how short it is. So that was my vote. And uh, now the book just this week, I think yesterday and won the national book award prize. Uh, and I've said consistently, Um, With all of the black people that write and talk about white supremacy, to me, it is very suspicious when white people adore and praise and heap prizes and trinkets on a black author talking about racism uh, at any point in history of racism, white supremacy. That is suspicious uh, and should, you know, be noted as to to what is happening there. Why are they doing this? uh, For what purpose? Because it's my conclusion that white people generally only do this sort of thing when it's going to strengthen the system of racism, white supremacy, and aid them in keeping us confused about what racism is, how it works. I've said consistently, I think Mr. Coates has a lot of great information. I've kept up with his uh, material, different articles and things that he writes, his piece on reparations, his piece on uh, the destruction of the black family be a racism, white supremacy, and a lot of the other posts that he has. Um, but I just, I, I have a lot of suspicion anytime that white people praise and celebrate a black person. I don't care if it's Toya Graham or Tallahassee Coates. Toya Graham is the uh, black mother in Baltimore that they were jumping up and down and saying she's the greatest mom ever uh, for beating on her black child uh, when they were having the unrest in Baltimore. I don't care if it's cheering her. I don't care if it's cheering Ta-Nehisi Coates. I don't care if it's cheering me. Uh, any black person that white people are jumping up and down and saying that they like, that is cause for pause and reflection. So my vote would be we should just do that and get it out of the way. I've mentioned it a few times before, and uh, people emailed in thus far. Nobody was opposed. The people that emailed in, they said that they would be down to read it. Uh, they thought it was logical. And plus, it's so short. Like, even if, you know, whatever you think about the book, we'll be done very, very quickly, and we can move on to something else to read. But just I think people will be talking about that book. They've been talking about that book 
uh, for the last couple months and probably will be uh, for a while to come. So it'd be good uh, for us to read it. That'd be a good reference point. We can ask people about it, uh, guests as they come on the program in the future. Uh, just, I think, you know, new books, it's always good to read things that are new. So unless something really drastic happens between now and next Friday, that is what we will be doing. Ta-Nehisi Coates' uh, book, Between the World and Me, or whatever it's called. You think you could get him on as a guest? Uh, I asked. He did not respond. I tweeted. I just even after I asked him to be a guest and he didn't respond, I just tweeted and asked him, how did he conclude that white people are sincerely and greatly pained about racism? And he would not respond to my question. I got other people to retweet as well. And he would not respond. I've seen him get into long, uh, long conversations on Twitter where people, white people asked him questions and even some non-white people too, but he did not respond. So, uh, the cows is widely hated uh, by many white people and non-white people. So, uh, I don't know. He might not be interested in speaking with us. That's fine too. Uh, I'm not in the, uh, <laughs> I'm really, I don't do a lot of chasing at this point, uh, and asking people a bunch of times, particularly if I, if I think that they just don't want to, to be a guest on the program, I just keep it pushing. And I think I've said many times before, I much rather talk to white people since they are the problem. But at this point, it doesn't seem like, uh, he will be visiting the cows, but at least we can study the book and get a better understanding of what's going on with all the attention white folks have dumped on him. I agree with that, actually. I, I think it's great to get um, into his psychology because just the fact that he didn't respond to you lets me know in some way he probably might have heard your program and he's probably so afraid to even be anywhere near associated with the cows that he's like, uh-uh, I'm not even touching that one. So I think this book will give us um, a nice insight into the way he thinks um, so when we, whenever we come across his subsequent writings and stuff, we have a better perspective as far as, as far as uh, his angle and what more more a better understanding of what he's about. I would say. Absolutely. And what's all the hubbub about? <laughs> Won all these awards? It's on President Obama's book <laughs> list. What's up? That's this. I think will be the second book that we have read that's been on President Obama's uh, reading list. The other one was uh the warmth of other suns isabel wilkerson which is outstanding work if that is the bar that we're using then wow he better have something awesome because that is spectacular scholarship uh he references her work uh in his writings uh which everybody should it's spectacular you should go back that is a massive book that is like a thousand pages but it is just absolutely amazing you will learn a lot about racism white supremacy from that book which we did in 2013 but uh looking forward that should be uh, a hoot to begin next friday and i'm so glad because i don't have to read it i've been narrating for i think five months now i've been reading since july when we did uh ben tillman and the reconstruction of of white supremacy this two concern i'm just ecstatic that i don't have to read anything uh, i can kick back and and just listen <laughs> have somebody else uh narrate so i'll be looking forward just that alone is cause to to do a dance uh with that I assume we're all done. I didn't hear anybody else with uh, Katrina commentary. Uh, we should be here tomorrow. Okay. Oh, does somebody have a, a Katrina comment they want to get in before we conclude? Yes, I just wanted to say one last thing, and that was at the ending of the book, throughout all the misery and horrific conditions that black people endured, it seemed like there were only two white people that ended up going to jail, I think, in Ray Nagin's trial. And like you said, Connie Udo and all the rest of them rode off into the sunset. 
people made money, white people moved on, and black people suffered and ended up in jail. I mute my life. Amen. And even make sure I get a final shot in since uh, we did start this book on the 10 year anniversary of the Danzinger Bridge shooting. All of the black people that got killed, not just I mean, we great job, great information on the schools that were destroyed and black people who were not able to rebuild their houses and all the other nasty things that happened. But I mean, loss of life, the black people that were shot and killed, they survived the storm, they survived the Beverly uh, levee breach and then were killed by white people after Katrina, some of them by enforcement officers, uh, NOPD officers after the storm. I do not see nearly the same level of vitriol and we got to get them and this is a disgrace and they got to go to jail and gloating when they do go to. I do not see any of that for the officers involved in the Danziger Bridge shooting and the lies and cover up that took place immediately after the shooting uh, with Danny Brumfield, black male who was shot and killed. There were officers who went to trial. Nobody got convicted for murder. They just got some little petty stuff for lying and that sort of thing. But again, not the same level of vitriol. Uh, Donnell Harrington, black male who was shot by a white man. His friend was almost shot, too. It's a wonder that he almost died. Uh, it's a wonder that he did not die, rather. Donnell Harrington, same thing. White guy that shot him didn't go to jail. They said he had mental problems and all this other nonsense. Uh, just contrast that with Ray Nagin. Them jumping up and down. Yeah, we got him. He's the worst mayor ever, and he's so corrupt. You have black people who were laid out in the sh- literally gunned down in the street. And I think all these people were unarmed. Danny Brumfield, uh, the two black families on the bridge, the uh, Madison family uh, and the Bartholomew family and J.J. Uh, Brissett Jr. unarmed. Uh, Donnell Harrington unarmed. These are unarmed black people uh, being gunned down and laid out in the street. There was no hubbub and let's put all these people in jail. And this is a disgrace and we're not going to tolerate it and corrupt police officers. And that's a, none of that strong contract. You go look at the uh, video footage of when the officers in the Danziger Bridge shooting, uh, when they turned themselves in for the criminal prosecution in New Orleans that was eventually tossed. They had a whole parade that came out to celebrate and congratulate them. And we're with you and Blue Lives Matter and all this other nonsense. Ray Nagin. Ugh criminal thug get out of here worst mayor ever throw him in jail for should have been more than 10 years they said the prosecution was trying to get a heavier uh sentence than 10 years uh with that uh we will wrap uh we should be here uh tomorrow compensatory call in 9 p.m eastern 8 p.m central and 6 p.m pacific uh, we should be here Monday as well. Uh, H. Khalif Khalifa will be talking about uh, black journalism. He had a lot of that in this book, WBLK and the New Orleans Tribune, talking about the history of black journalism, the importance of the black press and all of the difficulties that black people who have attempted to get out accurate information to black people, uh, mostly about what's happening with racism and how to deal with this problem the immense obstacles that they have had in place and uh, how much they have had to deal with just trying to, to get that information out and, and to inform people, but really looking forward to that. Very, very important to uh, spend some time on the history, the legacy, the significance of black journalists, but that'll be Monday. Uh, and he does mention in the book, the new Orleans tribune, he didn't write it. He edited it, but it is mentioned in the book, the new Orleans tribune and their contribution in new Orleans. So that will be Monday, normal broadcast time, 8 PM Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, if you have any gripes, confusion, questions, problems, uh, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail.com. 
untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at untiljustice at untiljustice. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, hope folks got some constructive information and appreciate it. I know we have uh, listeners in the Louisiana area. I hope we did justice. Uh, at least did hear from some folks uh, in Louisiana who said they had learned a lot that they did not know nearly uh, this much information about what took place associated with Katrina and they appreciate it. So I hope folks uh, also appreciate it and uh, don't feel compelled to buy Mr. Rivlin's book saying that again white people should not benefit from writing about racism white supremacy you should be able to get this book at the library uh, if you gotta have it it is a pretty good book so if you do want it for your library I would encourage getting a used copy uh, books that sell a lot that are best sellers tend to be uh, pretty easy to find a used copy that you can get for like you know, two dollars, five dollars, something really cheap. If you wait longer, you can get it even cheaper. You can find a lot of these books for like pennies, literally pennies. If you look on uh, Amazon for these books that are in wide circulation that people have a lot of. So try not to buy a brand new, get a used copy if you got to have it or just go to the library, read it and take it back. <laughs> Great way and making sure that that's one thing you can do to make sure white people do not benefit from practicing racism uh, with that. Listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. That is the blog address. You will see the PayPal button in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Huge thanks to all the folks who have kept us on the air for almost seven years. I hope the program has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy. That said, alcohol and white people, horrible combination. Avoid at all times, in all places, unless, you know, you absolutely got to be there. And then I would have my head on a swivel. Uh, things can go from zero to lethal in a matter of of seconds. Uh, I would even encourage being careful about being around non-white people who are under the influence. It's just too much evidence that frequently people make horrible decisions when they are intoxicated, not thinking clearly, and the racism just makes that an even more toxic combination. Uh, if you're going to get behind the wheel, you definitely don't want to be under the influence. Buckle up. That's an easy one to make sure we're doing everything that we can to minimize the likelihood of problems with race soldiers you never know when daniel holtzclaw is going to be the one that's pulling you over uh if you're going to be behind the wheel no intoxication even if you're going to be a passenger or a pedestrian uh because white people and especially race soldiers they are on the lookout to make problems for us we want to be lucid clear thinking so we can make the best possible decisions to protect our lives under a system of white terrorism racism Creator, it has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Help us to minimize our anti-blackness, maximize and increase our black self-respect. Thanks all for tuning in. Context of white supremacy signing out. We will be back in 24 hours. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. A victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.